0: Hey, everybody. Today, Rotto Talks for episode 62 of the podcast, which is going to be, I think, a pretty by-the-numbers episode. There's nothing particularly unusual going on. First, we'll have some game-related questions, and then some personal questions. And Jen will be joining us for that second half not really any reason to delay or preamble. So let's just get right to those questions, which, remember, folks, as always, you can send in to questions at rotto.com. And if you don't send in those questions, I got no show. So this is a two-way street, bucko. So looking forward to hear what you come up with next week. But for now, let's start hearing what you have to say right after this. <laughs> Okay, we are good to go. Actually, I should warn you up front, Of all the questions that came in this month, I didn't really think, after briefly scanning them when they first came in, over the last four weeks, that um, any of them were going to be something that Jen would specifically have anything to add. So, it's just going to be me, flying solo. And that's definitely something to consider, folks. If you can come up with good game-related questions that you think Jen might have insight or thoughts about, definitely bring those on, because I love having her talking about games, and she so very rarely does. But with that out of the way, I'm going to start with the first question from Ben. Who wonders if we're planning any of the virtual conventions that are going on this year? And if so, how would one join in on a game with me? I am sorry to say, Ben, no. I think the idea of virtual conventions is great. I'm excited it's happening. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how it evolves the overall gaming landscape. But just not really for me. I'm super impressed by Tabletopia and Board Game Arena and all these sites that allow you to play board games online, but well, I'm just not into it. I want to play games in real life. And more to the point, I mostly just want to play games with my wife, Jen, and I can do that. I am incredibly lucky in that regard that my 100% of my gaming group is available to me at all times in my house. So... I mean, I don't need to seek out new opportunities. And I, it's not like ones don't come up. Uh, the Man versus Meeple guys contacted me a couple of months ago, uh, David, and asked if I wanted to, not for the show, not for Rata Runs Through or Man versus Meeple, just want to know if I wanted to get online sometime and play Tenku or uh, Tekenu, Tekenu, which at the time uh, was an up-and-coming game. Uh, from, was it Bored Dice? And it was definitely one of my most anticipated games of the year. They were playing it fairly regularly, digitally, with the developers of the game, and they thought, just for fun, it might be nice to have me along. And honestly, I thought long and hard about that. Because I, I have met them, and I do like them, and I've never played games with Jeremy and, uh, or Kira or any of them, but I thought that would be fun. But then I realized, yeah, but Jen wouldn't be there and that's why I play games, really, at the end of the day. If Jen was not interested in playing board games with me, I think Rotto Runs Through would, would just curl up and die very, very quickly, or at the very least would switch over to a, a game channel mostly related to solo experiences, because I'm a withdrawn introvert, so I am not rushing out to seek out new opportunities to play with new people. And as a result... Virtual conventions don't really offer that much for me, but I'm i am I'm glad to see that they seem to be successful. And I hope they grow, and I hope they find ways to more accurately and completely emulate the feel of a proper convention. But honestly... I go to board game conventions predominantly so that Jen can come along and use it as a platform to sell her gaming glass. Um, If it weren't for that... I mean, it is nice to see folks that I know in the industry, fellow reviewers. It's nice to hang out, and I won't deny it's nice to play games with people other than Jen. But really, the thing that drives my gaming passion is Jen. And I've already got that. So that's why virtual conventions, I think, are great, but they're not... They, they don't fill a hole that I need filling. So that would be that. Sorry, Ben, I will not be seeing you on the virtual tabletops anytime soon. Maybe once um, I can start doing board gaming on my Oculus Quest headset. Maybe that would draw me in. And as I understand it, Tabletop Simulator is available, but not on Oculus Quest. So for now, digital implementation is don't for me. Sorry, moving right along, we then get to Jack, who uh, said I mentioned recently that Sentinels of the Multiverse, it uh, didn't land with us after one play, but it's uh, one of Jack's and and his wife's favorite games due to the asymmetric play variety and short play time. He's always thought uh, I didn't have it because it's not well balanced for two. I don't know. Is that the case? I'm not sure. Anyway, given my comment. Is there more to it than that? Why did I have a strong negative reaction to it? I remember very clearly trying to play the game. And honestly, I I couldn't say whether it works well for two or not. I didn't get that deep into it. Mostly, as I recall, and this was years and years and years ago, back when we were still in Malta, and I, I got a copy of the game. I think I borrowed it from somebody. Maybe Dave Tierkop. That was probably the case. I borrowed his copy because I'd wanted to try it. And I honestly don't even remember we finished the full game because there was such a burden of minutiae put on players in that game. The likes of which, as I recall, and my memory is spotty, you know, human beings, our, our memories are, are terrible. Sorry, I'm not sure. Oh, Alexa, I'm not talking to you. At no point did I say your name. Anyway, uh, you know, we, we are totally unreliable er, narrators.
1: Sorry. I'm not sure about
0: that. Okay. Could you say... Alexa, that, stop! I don't know what she's doing. Jeez. Anyway, sorry for that interruption, everybody. Um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. I, I So, don't take my word for it. But as I recall, very quickly into the game, as more and more modifiers got applied to our characters, it just became too much of a pain to constantly write. Okay, well, I have plus two because of this, but I have minus three because of that, but that gives me plus one, and that gives me another plus three, but only because of these other two things. But wait, now I only have two of them, so it's really only a plus two, and wh- ah, what am I doing? Ah I'm probably over exaggerating. It's probably not as bad as all that. But as I understand it, there is a little cottage industry built up around Sentinels of the Multiverse of tools you can get digital, uh, uh, you know, assistance and whatnot to streamline and simplify all the stuff you've got to keep track of. I only played the base game as it came out of the box, and generally, like, yeah, we're just not having fun here, and we just didn't see a reason to continue. And you know, I know that. You know, Aeon's End, or Marvel Champions, as you go on to mention. Or Lord of the Rings, the card game. You know, there's plenty of these games that do put a lot of burden on players. With, right, i got to remember, this keyword means this, this keyword means that. And because I've got these three things, it, it affects the enemy in this way. You know, a lot of games do this. But there was just something about Sentinels that went so far over-the-top in that regard. We just lost interest in it very, very quickly. And again, I I prefaced all that by saying, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we were just having a bad day. Maybe I made the number one cardinal mistake that I used to make a lot more, and now I never make, of trying to get Jen to play a game after 4 p.m. Because after 4 or 5 p.m., it's got to be super-duper lightweight for Jen to hold her attention at all. I don't remember if we tried to play it in the evening or not, but that's what I remember of my experience. And I'm glad, Jack, you and your wife love it. I know a lot of people do. It's gotten so much expansion content over the years. But yeah, that's what kept us away. Okay, Mo says, What do I know and what do I think of the upcoming game, The Castles of Tuscany? By Stefan Feld. I know it's an upcoming game. And uh, I'm assuming they would not have called it that without it being. I mean, you know, to go so far from the same publisher, same designer, and to call it The Castles of obviously makes me think it's a sequel. Makes me wonder if uh, it's going to you know, use the same dice rolling and drafting mechanism and maybe doing something else. Or maybe we're doing the same thing of building up a region but not being driven by dice. I don't know. I have no inside information. And uh, I am now looking. I just went. I figured, hey, more information must be available by now, right? And according to Board Game Geek, the Castle of Tuscany is a standalone game that might resemble the Castles of Burgundy in some way. So, clearly at this point, nobody knows. And I am excited about it. It's a must-get sight unseen. And hopefully I can convince Aaliyah to send me out a review copy as soon as possible. Hey, Aaliyah, if anybody's listening, I'd love to cover it ahead of time. Um, but, yeah, I I I know all I need to know. You had me at Feld. You had me at Aaliyah. You had me at Castles Up. You had me at Tuscany. But I got no inside scoop. I'm very sorry about that, Mo. Uh, which is short for Morgan, or Morgan apparently. All right. Then we move on to Tim, who uh, someone in the last episode asked about how I track upcoming board games. Tim doesn't do nearly as much work as I do, but he follows a couple of geek lists that he thought I might be interested in. Oh, Tim has some tips. There is a pre-launched Kickstarter board game geek list that's available on the site. Upcoming is used in the loosest sense... They're listed as, we'll get here, quote, eventually. Probably. It's a nice way to keep finger on the pulse. And he's given a link, which um, I, I know you could just do a Google search for Board Game Geek pre launch Kickstarter Board Game, and you'll find this geek list. I subscribe to this one, Tim. I, I always have. And, uh, although, haven't they changed it to, they, they keep changing it yearly now? Or no, 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 I'm thinking of the one that's actually tracks things that are actually live. Yeah, the pre-launch is really nice. It's really good because as soon as one starts, whoever's monitoring it takes it off the list because it's just letting you know about upcoming stuff. It's a it's a really great resource. I do subscribe to it, and I do look at it a few times a week. Let's see. And then he also mentions there's a meta list of geek lists like, um... Oh, yeah, and then you mentioned the one I was thinking of, the board... Uh, 2020 Kickstarter board game projects part 1 which if you do a Google search you'll find that and that's the one that keeps track of things as they're actually running. I used to follow that but I don't anymore. One because it used to be an ongoing geeklist but now they've changed it so you have to like keep subscribing to new ones and you know by the time it gets to Kickstarter, well my window is done. They ha- I had to know about this game weeks or months ahead of time if I was going to cover it. Once it's on Kickstarter, well, good luck to it. And like I said, then there's also the uh, Kickstarter Project Metalist on Board Game Geek, which, uh, again, you could probably do a Google search to find, which is a summary, which uh, this one I didn't know about. I might want to check that out. That's actually really cool. Let's go ahead and take a look at it. Do a search for Board Game Geek uh, Kickstarter project meta geek list. This is what I'm doing a Google search for. And yep, that took me right to it. The same one that you linked to and uh, maintained by Matt Wolf. Oh, okay. No, this is a geek list of other geek lists. This is interesting, though. This is interesting. I might look at this a little bit more. Anyway, though, so it looks like Tim didn't have a question. Folks, those are some suggestions if you're looking for ways to keep track of the latest upcoming stuff. Thanks, Tim. All right. Now, question, give me a question, though, next time. I, I feel like I'm left hanging here. Alrighty. Jay wants to circle back... On a call to action, uh, that since it's now more prescient, will I call out Lovecraft's white supremacy more loudly? Will I commit to not reviewing games and asking publishers to stop making games from this universe? Uh, hey Jay, I do remember uh, you wrote this. Uh, you wrote in about this a while ago, and I have to admit, at the time, I mean, I was caught completely flat-footed. I didn't really know much about the. Problematic nature. I mean, you know, obviously, I, I have looked into it more since you wrote, and I have seen other people talking about it. How you know the man himself was openly racist, and as I seem to recall, my response was, "Well, did that actually work? Make its way into the works?" And I appreciate on the surface it didn't, but that the context, the understanding the context of who he was and what he believed, it is actually there. And let's see. So um, I'm continuing with Jay's email. I posted the same information on a board game geek thread. About this, but my call to action was removed because it was quote off topic. While others, without any real substance, were left up. Many white people want to seem like they are doing the right thing, but are actually, uh, but but not actually change what they're doing. In an overwhelmingly white hobby, we should be doing better. I just recently caught up on the podcast, and you heard, and you heard that I had follow up questions. So. Um, 1. It is unclear if he stopped being racist towards the end of his life, as many of his fans claim. If he had an epiphany late in life. 2. Did his racism influence his writings? Okay, cool. Um, Your answer, in my opinion, yes. Racists commonly believe the world is um, declining around them, and that's because of the X. Insert, you know, whatever you want, people. It's not... Difficult to make the connection between Lovecraft, especially his especially bleak universe overrun by unthinkable monsters and mindless cultists. Okay. And then, actually, I see Jay wrote a follow-up, he sa- and, which he said, I should add, I just countered, and I believe there are more Lovecraft games... I, oh, I just counted. Sorry. I just counted, and I believe there are more Lovecraft games in the Board Game Geek Top 100 than there are games by people of color. What does that say about us? And obviously, the industry as a whole. Um, thanks for coming back around with that, Jay. I mean, I had kind of independently. I mean, I have seen this pop up more and more, and uh, you know, and certainly, uh, definitely not a surprise with the uh, with the times we are living through right now. With the shirt I wear, and I am conti- committed to continuing to wear in every single video moving forward. Um, to answer your question, here's the thing. Uh, what I want, what I want to do, and what I will commit to doing. If another Lovecraft game comes across my desk uh as something that I'm gonna cover, well one, I should point out, most of them I'm probably not that interested in covering anyway, because Jen is implicitly turned off by you know, if, if they're if they're grotesque or are really dark and um you know and really um Envelop themselves in the you know the the insanity and, and the violence and all that. Jen's just not going to be interested in the first place. But of course, that's not how Lovecraft Mythos is used in most board games. It's just used as hey, it's an interesting alternative to uh, Indiana Jones style. Oh, here's a archaeologist who goes out and uh, has supernatural encounters with stuff based on real world um, uh, religious mythologies. And instead, hey, let's have this this uh, this other. Uh, religious mythology where adventures are going out and it's just an adventure thing. It's 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 high pulp action and adventure. At this point, Jay, I am inclined to think that if one of those comes along for me and it I look at it and it's one that I could say, yeah, I'd be interested in covering this because it might be say uh another Arkham Horror the card game or whatnot. Or even what was it? Cthulhu Realms. Uh, You know, any Cthulhu game that has an interest to me. And like I said, I turn down most of them because they're normally about, hey, how can we just be really dark and gritty and, 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 and kill innocent people so that we can summon our elder gods and stuff like that. At this point, if they come along and I think they're interesting, I will, at the very least, mention in my final thoughts that if the publisher of said game has not actually taken, has not gone the extra mile to include in their materials a section devoted to, right, here's the background. Here's what you should know about this world you are running around and having fun in. Here's who the man was. Here is what he wrote. Here is what he said. Now, I, because I, on, on some level, I'm, I have to admit, Jay, I'm really torn. I do firmly believe in you know, uh, you know, the death of the author, se- separating the author from the, uh, from the work, and letting the work stand for itself. And of course, that leads to all kinds of questions about, well, what about uh, J.K. Rowling right now, and the uh, stances that she is deciding to take, and what does that mean for Harry Potter? And you know, the simplest thing is to say, ah, well, you know what? Let the work speak on its own. At this point, I mean, I am kind of evolving on this. That's kind of always been my old. I, I don't think that's good enough. I think at the very least, if you are going to use this work, you have to use it as a platform to um, to elevate and educate. And in, in the same way, I think you know, ever since Mombasa took that extra step of right on the, you know, you can't, you can't avoid it. Literally on the first page, the very first thing it says is, you know, the uh, colonization and subjugation of, of Africa was a very dark spot on humanity's soul. And it lasted from here up till here. And the effects are still being felt today. We are not, um, including that in this historical simulation. We're only focusing on the economic part, but we do think history is important. And here's some suggested reading. I thought that was brilliant. I am, moving forward, going to be um, knocking games that don't do that, basically. Uh, and I haven't always... I, I, I've been quick to praise when they do, and I've kind of let it go when they don't. And I don't think that's good enough anymore. Because here's the thing... Um. Was it Uh, the Watchmen miniseries? Uh, Spoiler alert! If you if anybody hasn't watched the Watchmen miniseries, uh, although it's a spoil it's a it's it's not really much of a spoiler because it's literally how the entire series opens. The entire series opens um, making people live through the uh, Tulsa Black Wall Street massacre of the of the 1920s, and you know it's played out in gruesome detail at great length. And here's the deal: prior to that. You know, I had no knowledge of the existence of this moment in American history. I had been educated um, in American grade schools and high schools and universities. I was in my 50s, and I knew nothing of this history. And it took an escapist piece of superhero um, fiction to make me aware of the reality. It's so ridiculous to me that as it was happening, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is really terrible. During the actual scenes as they play out, this must be something that is part of the alternate universe of The Watchmen. Because, of course, in The Watchmen, uh, Richard Nixon didn't get left office, and he was still president in the 1980s. And, you know, and stuff like that. Oh, This was... this was, and that, I mean, I, I can't tell you how shocked and, and disgusted I was when I found out, no, this is real, and this is a part of our history that has been completely whitewashed. Um, you know, because history is written by the victors, and uh, and that was that was a case of what was happening there. And no point was, I mean, I, you know, I mean, and honestly, Jay, it wasn't until this year. Sorry, folks, this is getting a little bit away from games, but th- this does come back to games. I you know, this, it, this year is the first year I ever even had ever heard the term Juneteenth, and that's disgusting. That's that's abhorrent and that's repellent. That I mean, I, I like to think. I mean, I, I don't necessarily have my finger on the pulse of everything, but I like to think I have a, a pretty good general knowledge of the world and history. And I didn't. And I and and here's the thing: a piece of fictional entertainment was able to make me aware, and I think make me a more well-rounded um, person who has a better understanding of the reality that my fellow man lives through the day. And to bring it all back to games. I think games can do that too, and I think games should be doing that. So um, the next, uh, you know, what do you call it? The I mean, I, I am not going to cover a game like that. I, it's basically a stance I've decided to take. I had already been thinking about this in terms of colonization as a subject matter. Uh, that you know, I I, I, I I think you know because because uh, Maracaibo obviously had a big, big back, uh, backlash. And Santa Maria before that. And these are games I absolutely adore from developers and designers that I really respect. And I think both of those games have examples where, look, and we went the extra mile. We actually did our research. We've learned about it. And we're taking, we're using our platform to try to make players who probably, the vast majority of people who would ever play Maracaibo have no concept that, um, you know, uh, the Pirates of the Spanish Main, that there was anything going on, other than you know, uh, a barrels of rum and chests of booty, and that's all there was. And uh, you know, and, and, and oh, yeah, and I guess maybe slavery, but it's not really a thing that they even think about. I think games have the opportunity to trumpet this stuff from the rooftop to an audience that is largely unaware, but these games can be used to. Educate um, without you know beating over the head, you know, without becoming sermons. Just lay it out there, and um, while Euro games, which obviously is my purview maybe aren't as well-suited as Ameritrash games, because they're implicitly more dry, they're more high-level. That's why a colonization game uh, it, you know, doesn't really reflect the horrors of what's going on day-to-day, because yeah, you're just some middle manager, probably not even in-country, back in your home country of origin, just shuffling papers around, trying to make decisions about where resources should go. Um, and... I think that's fine because you are being placed in a role, but I do think um, creative people should—they have a responsibility at this point. And I'm—I'm. I'm, this is what I'm starting to think. Games have a responsibility to not just say, "Oh, well, look, we're just about this," because we're all in it together, and you know the horrors and stains. Of, of these practices still affect people today. And um, therefore, I think it's incumbent on all of us as a society. Wow, this got political real fast. Sorry, folks. If People don't want to hear it. But that's my opinion. To answer your question, Jay, I, I, don't, I don't think there's any particular value to um, just say, oh, well, let's just cancel Lovecraft games. Or, I mean, I I wouldn't be adverse to that, but I think that's a missed opportunity. I think, wow, hey, you, somebody who has loved Lovecraft-style games, Cthulhu games, and you've been all the way back to Arkham Horror, the first one in the 80s, and you just thought this was so amazing, and you had no idea what the context and the undercurrent is there, I think developers have the opportunity to make that person who is so invested in it Really open their eyes, and I think that is something that artists should be doing. So that would be my particular approach, Jay. Uh, uh, let me know if that answers your question. Um, I, 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 it's, it's what feels it, it it's what feels right to me. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's why I'm wearing a Black Lives Matter T-shirt. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not making my entire show about that, but I am wearing it as a constant reminder to folks because a lot of people who watch my channel don't want to be reminded of that. And I believe me, I'm hearing nothing nonstop from people who just I don't want to hear about it. And I'm sure Cthulhu fans and Cthulhu game makers look. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to think about it. And Rather than just shunting it all into a corner and forgetting about it, I think it's a better opportunity to say, no. You are going to hear about it, and you are going to think about it, and it's going to make you um, reevaluate your relationship with this. It doesn't mean you can't still enjoy it. I really deeply enjoyed the Watchmen miniseries. Um, and the artists were using it as a vehicle for something more than just cheap thrills and entertainment. Board games are very, very primitive in our ability to um, you know articulate the struggles of the world we find ourselves in. But I don't think that means we can't be trying. And so that's kind of where I stand on that, Jay. Let me know what you think. Um, all righty. Uh, then we move on to uh, Deb. Phew. Okay. I imagine this is going to be a bit lighter. Okay. All right. Um... Until the beginning of this year, I could, Deb could state with some certainty that she'd listen to every minute of Rotto Runs Through content, even multiple plays, for some of the new game preview episodes. Deb can no longer say that. Uh, which rates is a good problem because she appreciates having content on reserve. However, while um, she really loves how much more there is, she doesn't want to miss anything. And now there's a lot across multiple platforms. Uh, so she asks... What should she use as a control list for Rotto Runs Through content? podcast, Patreon feed? Thank you, Deb. Um, Deb, you've got a few different options. Uh, the, yeah, you can actually... You do not have to back rotto Runs Through at all, but you can still go to um, patreon.rado.com or patreon.com slash rotto, and you can just subscribe to the feed there. And you will get notices of everything. Because if people are actually supporting my show... Uh, you better believe my number one concern is people who give me a buck or two a month, yeah, you guys get to know everything I'm doing. And um, Patreon is set up so that every time I post something or update something, you get an email. And then you can follow the email to the story, and you can have a little conversation there, or ask questions. And I'm more aggressive, or you know, more Johnny on the spot, with people who post on Patreon, because that's where folks are, who are actually supporting the show, than anywhere else. Although I try to be Johnny on the spot everywhere. Um, right, what was I saying? So, you can go to patreon.com. Subscribe. You, you don't have to back the show. You can subscribe to the show. Alternatively, if you don't want to do that, you can go to Twitter or Facebook... Um, you know, if you go to facebook.com slash Runs Through or twitter.com slash every episode of the podcast, every video I put up, those things get a notice on my Twitter and Facebook feed. I wouldn't recommend Facebook, quite frankly, for two reasons. One, Facebook is evil. And every month I am still trying to decide, should I just, in, in a completely ineffectual and largely symbolic, um, uh... Uh, message. Should I just? Cancel and delete myself off of Facebook. I really feel like I should, but I know that won't mean hardly anything. And I know there's a lot of people who do follow me there. But the other reason is, even if you follow me on Facebook, this is why Facebook is so evil. There's no chance you'll actually get notices of every single thing I post. Um, Only a certain, I mean, I can see how many people subscribe, and Facebook dutifully tells me, and here's how many people saw this post. And oh, so you're not telling everybody who actually subscribes me on Facebook, are you? No, we're not. If you want that, you can pay us. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to pay you. For that, and so I'm down on Facebook across the board. I look at it maybe once a week, which is why if you if you comment on stuff on Facebook or if you send me direct messages there, you I mean I might not see it at all for quite a while. Um, Whereas Twitter, I um, am a bigger fan of the the role that Twitter sees for itself in. societal discourse. And so, you could just subscribe to me on Twitter. You could, you could subscribe to nothing else on Twitter. And I believe, again, I'm not sure about this, I believe you can set it up so that Twitter would automatically send you an email every single time I make a new tweet. Now, I should warn you, though, on Twitter, there is occasionally some non-game-related stuff as well, which I'm I'm pretty much limiting to there. Um, so, that's something to bear in mind. Your other option is to go on BoardGameGeek, where there are two... Geekless, you could subscribe to, and then your Board Game Geek subscription. What you really want to do is, you can just subscribe to me... That's an interesting thing a lot of people don't realize about BoardGameGeek. If you go on to BoardGameGeek, create a BoardGameGeek account, find anything by me, any one of my videos, and then find the little entry for Rotto, you can click on that and subscribe to me. Then, in your BoardGameGeek subscription page, you will get a notice of every single time I do anything, including ask questions about rules, or answer questions, or talk about Star Wars. If you want to really go deep into everything I do online, probably I spend 50% of my waking Online time on Board Game Geek. I post lo- I post dozens of things every week, just in the middle of regular conversations. And if you subscribe to me, you'll see it all. If you if that's a bit much, though, what I was going to say is you can subscribe to two geek lists: my um uh, my run through geek list and my quote other stuff geek list. You can find links to both of those if you go to guild.rotto.com. There's a list of like really common stuff. Or you know, like uh, common resources that I recommend for people right at the top of guild.rado.com and you can subscribe to those geek lists. So th- there are several different ways you can stay in the know and in the loop on what I am creating. Um, let's see. And, of course, another thing I would suggest is I only recently discovered the Watch Later feature of YouTube, and I love it so much, although it consumes so much of my life now. At any given time, I've generally got between 70 and 150 videos that I have marked for Watch Later. I will never run out of content. It's a really powerful and useful little tool that YouTube creates there. So that's just, as an aside, that's not just for me, but just in general. All right, Deb. uh, Let's move on to Andrus who uh, has a game question. He wonders if I've watched the Shut Up and Sit Down review of Wingspan, and if so, what did I think of their claim that Wingspan's theme is nothing more than, quote, set dressing, end quote. They also implied that Monopoly is more strongly themed than Wingspan. Maybe I have other thoughts about this review. Well, I have not seen that review. I have to admit, I... Honestly, nothing against Shut Up and Sit Down, but ever since Paul left, it's never been the same. And while Matt, and I'm sorry, I've totally forgotten the new guy, because I, 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 I've, I've only seen maybe one uh, video that he's been like tangential in, and I know they got an intern as well. Um, but yeah, I just, I very rarely watch anymore because to me, Matt, or not Matt, um, Paul was the heart and soul of that show. And without it, I, I feel it's still great. It's an amazingly well-produced piece of entertainment. And I do think that they are very um, thoughtful and insightful in their comments. But it's just not the same. And I don't find myself enjoying it. In part because I think Paul was the closest to me as a gamer. Quinns and Matt, and uh, the other folks whose name I don't remember, they are looking for something different out of gaming than what I am. And as a result, I find the insight they bring to be less personally meaningful. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. I mean, they're they're top of the walk. They have supplanted... I mean, I believe they are bigger than Tom Vassal at this point. They are probably... They're nowhere near as big as Will Wheaton and Tabletop at its height, but I would say they'll probably get more view. Any one video, uh, if a, a, a game that appears on any channel is going to get more views on their channel than anywhere else, and probably more views on their channel than um, uh, several other channels combined. So good on them, but this would be an example of something I vehemently disagree with i think that is literally and i mean you're paraphrasing so i mean i'm taking this out of context but if what they said is what if what you said is what they said That's absurd. Wingspan is a wonderfully thematic game. There is clearly so much love and attention put into the design of that game by Elizabeth Hargraves in the way that mechanisms reflect the behavior of the birds to say that it is window dressing. Honestly, it's a little insulting to the work she clearly did because she has such a deep abiding love of this subject matter. And it's just a blithe, off-the-cuff, kind of snarky comment. Again, I don't know if that's the case, because I have not seen their video. Um, but, all you know, and so I'm probably blowing it way out of proportion. But, yeah, that I, to say that I disagree that um, Wingspan is at best set dressing for its thematic integration, that is... That is absurd. That is, a, that is an objectively, I would even go so far as to say, objectively absurd statement if you actually deep dive into all the thematic integration into that game. That would be my feeling. And I would happily debate Quinns or Matt or whoever did the video, uh, or Paul, for that matter, if he agrees on that topic. But you should hasten to add, I am the theme whisperer. I look for theme and I find it where no one else thinks it exists. I can take just a little, a crumb, a kernel of theme, and in my mind, that blossoms into a thematic integration into everything. So I would be the first to say that while maybe they overstated their case, I am probably overstating my case as well. And the truth is, as so often the case, somewhere in the middle. All um, Moving along to Andrew. Andrew. Let me, before we do, let me just make sure I'm still recording. Yes, I am still recording. All righty. Let's find Andrew again. Uh, away with you, Audacity. Away with you. Okay. Andrew is up. First of all, Andrew, uh, first thing I see is an adorable picture of a pit bull with, it looks like Harry Potter glasses and a uh, scarf, and that is ridiculously adorable, and I will be sharing that with Jen later. But to summarize, you would like me to please discuss how I will be eating Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. I will not be eating it, but I can see your next section, your next sentence is how will I be rating it? All right, so how will I, okay, I don't know if that was a typo in the first one or whatever. How will I rate Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion? Now, of course, by now I already have. Because you must have written this before it came out. Yes, I believe that's the case. Um, will I consider it an expansion of Gloomhaven all on my ranking of Pandemic and, and Pandemic Legacy, for example? How does it impact the ranking of Gloomhaven as a whole? How does Frosthaven weigh into this? Will Jaws of the Lion be eligible for my Games of the Year list? And then here's a picture of my Pit slash Greyhound mix. Oh my gosh, that makes her even more adorable. Luna in her Halloween costume. I will definitely check. Um, yes, I consider Jaws of the Lion to effectively be an expansion, in the same way that I consider Dominion Intrigue to be an expansion, even though it is a completely standalone game. I apply how much I like or dislike Dominion Intrigue or Aeon's End. Legacy or Aeons in New Age or Pandemic Legacy. I consider all of these to be expansions and I do not rate them separately. Instead, I um, consider them, okay, considering now that there's this, uh, I mean, uh, wh- I consider the quality of the expansions I've played in my overall rating of games on Ranked.Rado.com. When I finally got the expansion for Homesteaders, that bumped it up significantly by several decimal points because the Homesteaders expansion makes that game, um, You know, as an example. And so even though they're functionally standalone games, as far as I'm concerned, they are expansions for my own edification. I'm trying to remember, do I do that for the offshoot pandemics? Let me go. I'm going to go to ranked.rotto.com. You know, uh, what's it? Uh, you know, pandemic... Fall of Rome or Pandemic. Oh, uh, you know, uh, I can't think of their names now. Iberia. Yeah, let's see. Let me look. I think I keep those separately. Pandemic. Pandemic. Yeah, or Rapid Response. Oh, okay. No, I kept Rapid Response. Oh, okay. Maybe I even, yeah, it looks like, oh, I know I need to do it. I just need to look at Pandemic, Pandemic, Iberia. Because what I'll do is, if I can spell Iberia, I can do it. Did I classify it as owned or pre-ordered? I mark all of my expansions. Yes, I classify it as pre-ordered. Every expansion I own. You'll see, if you look at my... Anybody can look at my collection on BoardGameGeek and you can sort by what do I own? What do I have for sale? What do I have pre-ordered? Every expansion I list as pre-ordered as just a quick and easy way to classify them as expansions. And so that's why you'll find I have Pandemic Iberia. I have it pre-ordered. I've owned it for a long time, but officially it's pre-ordered because it's an expansion, and I combine all those. It is the combination of all the variations of core Pandemic. Not Pandemic. um, What do you call it? I can't think of the name of it. The the, the real-time one, Rapid Response, because that's a radically different game. Uh, So I keep that one out. But all the ones that are just straight-up cooperative games that just do different flavors of Pandemic, they all come together and combine. That's what makes Pandemic my number one ranked game of all time. If Pandemic, at this point, only existed in its original form and it had no expansions, no offshoots, no nothing, Pandemic would probably not be my number one ranked game of all time. It would be in my top 10 still, but it would not be my number one. And so, uh, to answer your question... Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion is an expansion for Gloomhaven. I mean, it's it's hard to argue against that because you can take the characters of Jaws of the Lion in and out of the main game. You can transfer stuff back and forth. And so, yeah, it is an expansion. And while I'm super impressed, Gloomhaven is my number three ranked game of all time. Jaws of the Lion, if... oh, didn't you ask this? You did ask this. You did ask this. Uh, how did it, all right? How does it impact my ranking on Gloomhaven? It doesn't. My Gloomhaven ranking is still my number 3 game. Uh, number 2 is still Shadow on Crossfire. Number 1 is Pandemic in all of its glory and splendor. Um, but did you ask this? No, you didn't. But here's the interesting question to me. If Gloomhaven had only been released in Jaws of the Lion form... Jaws of the Lion came out, and Gloomhaven, and Frosthaven, and Forgotten Circles, none of that other stuff existed. If uh, um, you know G- Isaac's first game was Gloomhaven-Jaws of the Lion, it would probably be my number two ranked game of all time. It would probably supplant... Um, what do you call it? Shadowrun Crossfire. Because Gloomhaven-Jaws of the Lion moves mountains to resolve my... Primary issues with Gloomhaven as a whole. Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion is significantly superior as a gameplay experience to Gloomhaven, and now we're still talking about upper echelon stuff. Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion is my number two of all time. Gloomhaven is my number three. No, I guess, strictly speaking, Pandemic. If you well, no, okay. If if we drop this idea of conflating a game and all of its expansions or spinoffs as one ranking if we're just doing... All right, then my number one game of all time is still Shatter on Crossfire. My number two game is Gloomhaven, Jaws of the Lion. My number three game is probably straight up Gloomhaven. My number four game, I'm not quite sure. You know, Trois, Burgundy, Pandemic, you know, the rest, those just fall out more normally. But I don't want to have a top 10 where there's two instances of effectively the same game. That's why I combine everything. Jaws of the Lion is phenomenal it 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 it's implementation of a baby step tutorial is just so nearly flawless it's replacing of having to build put together a bunch of tiles and instead just oh open a book set up a few things and you are ready to play with in under a minute is so revelatory it's shocking to me to think that Frosthaven won't do that, won't have an adventure book. I mean, I understand that gets it because, hey, having a bunch of individual tiles mean the game is infinitely um, expandable, which is true. Look at the, I mean, uh, you know, Isaac must have given us by now close to 100 additional missions in regular Gloomhaven because it came with individual tiles so we can just keep on making adventures forever. You know, Jaws of the Lion can't have that. I mean, he could put out, and I, I, he could allow us to print up new maps. Um, but still, yeah, Jaws of the Lion uh, would, would definitely rank above. But I'm going to combine them. And as great as Jaws of the Lion is, the lion's share of the Gloomhaven experience is still Gloomhaven. So the issues I have with Gloomhaven probably knock it down. And to be fair, Jaws of the Lion could have done a little bit better, or, You know, could have done a bit more streamlining that they chose not to do. But even still, i probably like it my number two game. Your other question that is, will it be eligible for my top 10 of the year? That is hard. I think I think it'll get an honorable mention um because I don't know. gosh, that's so hard. That is so hard. I, I, the, the, the tricky thing is I gave pandemic legacy season one the nod as the best game of the year, though I should not have done that. I am I'm definitely being inconsistent. And I've never gone back and retroactively undid that. I did do that, because I had put Pandemic Fall of Rome in the top 10 for last year, and then I realized, oh, when I'm updating, I need to take that out. Because it is... I, I, I should consider it an expansion. But, I mean, Pandemic Legacy Season 1 did something so radically different. I mean, not only transformed Pandemic, but literally transformed the industry as a whole with its implementation of Legacy-style gameplay, I felt like, and I still feel like, it deserves to get Game of the Year nod, even though that kind of breaks my own rule. I will have to wait and see how I feel about Jaws of the Lion. I'll have to wait and see what else is a potential top tenner at the end of the year. My instinct is to say no. The Jaws of the Lion is not quite as transformative as... Pandemic Legacy was, and therefore I should consider it a um, uh, uh, you know an expansion, and therefore it wouldn't make the list. But it's too early to say, uh, because it's a really special game. And it's a really interesting question. I have to assume, sorry folks, probably the majority of you could care less about this. This is so in the weeds of um, ranking semantics, or logistics, whatever you want to call it. But that was a fun question. You really made me think about that, Andrew. Okay, Let's move on to Oliver, who, <clears throat> let's see, uh, he's been following for two years since his entry in the hobby. Run-throughs have been most helpful. Uh, look forward uh, for, uh, ah. to... Thank you for the kind words, Oliver. Okay. Now you would like to hear my opinion on two board games. You apologize if I've already done so, but you did not see it. Ticket to Ride, London. Uh, and then he he writes a bit of his experience about Ticket to Ride, and then a question... Uh, what do I like about this very simple game that made us keep it? I have actually spoken about Ticket to Ride, London. And, um, Deb, I, I misled you. Um, if you want to know everything I do, there's one thing that just subscribing on Twitter or subscribing um, you know, to those geek lists on BoardGameGeek is going to miss. And that is, every month I do my new Roundup videos that I've been doing now for a while... And in those roundup videos, games like Ticket to Ride London will get mentioned. And I'll spend a few minutes talking about them, what we liked, what we didn't like, and ranking them, how much how they did compared to all the other games we played that month. But often, that game will then not subsequently get a proper run through, because I got to move on to new stuff. Ticket to Ride London, Oliver, that's what happened. Let's see. Google. Google... Um, Rotto, ticket to ride London. Let's see if that comes up. Uh, it does not give you the roundup, but now do a Google search for Rotto, ticket to ride London, roundup. And boom, there is a link to September 2019 roundup 30 games in 76 minutes. That's the episode where I talked about it. So, um, and unfortunately, I don't really have a good way. To for people to find stuff like that, games like this are going to disappear. Now, what I do is, um, when I upload these roundups to Board Game Geek, sorry, this is a continuation of Deb's question, I, I make a blog entry about them, and so if you subscribe. To the Rotto Rounds Up blog that's on BoardGameGeek. Although if you also, if you just subscribe to me, or if you subscribe to my other stuff geek list, you will get notifications of when new Roundups show up. If you look at the blog entry, every game that's talked about in a given roundup episode does appear there. So if you want to look at if you want to go, if Oliver, if you were trying to find anything I'd ever said about Ticket to Ride London, if you go to the the BoardGameGeek page about ticket to ride London, and go not to the videos, not to the forums, not to the reviews, but to the blog section, you will find, oh look, Rado has a blog covering this and it would take you to what I just what I just showed you. Sorry, that was trying to teach folks how to fish. Um, now let me just give you the fish, Oliver. I think the game is great. I was so shocked. Jen and I, we really like Ticket to ride Europe. Uh, back when we first got into the industry a decade ago. But we played it so much, we got so burned out on it. and We tried several other Ticket to rides and we just eventually... Yeah, we just don't need to play Ticket to Ride anymore. It's just not... It's not holding our interest. We've moved on to other stuff, and I eventually got rid of everything. And I had a sizable Ticket to Ride collection, including some of the hard-to-get-out-of-printers. But I got rid of all of it. Um, And then I heard really good things about Ticket to Ride New York... And then the publisher sent me Ticket to Ride. London. Okay, let's give it a try. And Jen and I were both floored by how excellent it is. And I realized that I can very much enjoy Ticket to Ride as a 10 to 15 minute game. And Ticket to Ride way overstays its welcome. Ticket to Ride is generally going to take 45 minutes to an hour. Um, I mean, I guess if you're like really super Ticket to Ride sharks, you can get it done in a half an hour. But Ticket to Ride is just a perfect morsel of a filler. And that is why we decide to keep it. And to be honest, it's very rare we have any use for fillers. But if I ever was in a situation where, hey, we just want to play a 15-minute game... Um, Ticket to Ride London would be a, an excellent one to do. Plus, it's good to keep around nice gateways. I could totally imagine teaching my mom how to play Ticket to Ride London, I think. I think she could handle it. So that's what we like about it. We like its length. And we wish t- Ticket to Ride had always been that short a length because it's perfect at that length. Okay, then you also, you asked the exact same question about uh, uh, Hannah... I've never tried to say this out loud. Hannah McOgee. H- Hannah McOgee. Hannah Mikoji, I'll say. Hannah Mikoji. Yeah, I'm going to say I got that right. And it's another one that you really like. You talk about how you like the eye cut you choose, and it's a two-player only game. And have I played it? What did I think about it? I have actually played it. Interestingly, I've never played it with Jen. I um, I have played it with Apollo the guy who does my rules corrections. Because the year that I went to Liericon in Portugal, I actually flew into the same town that Paulo lives at, and I stayed the night at his apartment, and then I drove down to Liericon with him and his buddies the next day. And so that night, we I think it was the first time we'd ever played games, I think. And he loves it. And he said, hey, let's play this. You're going to love it. And interestingly, it was the only game I won. I actually beat him. I was really surprised. So here's the thing. I think it's a neat little game. Get a nice little battle of wits, and I suspect Jen would like it. But the eye cut you choose mechanism—that is a you know a big part of the game. Here's the deal: I have played other I split you choose games with Jen, and oh my gosh, there is nothing that um, causes her to break down with analysis paralysis more than trying to. Okay, I know doing what you want. Okay, I need these, but oh, but I can't give you that because wait, what do you really want? And I, the amount of. Burn it puts on her brain. We, I don't think we have ever kept any I split you choose game. You know, that includes like uh, Castles of Mad King Ludwig was an excellent game in a lot of ways superior to Suburbia, but we got rid of it and kept Suburbia because Suburbia doesn't have an I split you choose, whereas Ca- uh, Castle of Mad King Ludwig does. So I think that is that that's the main thing that kept me away. I thought, oh, that's neat. Um, but yeah, I don't know that I necessarily need to take this home. Um, so, yeah, th- that's my feeling on those two games. And it would appear that was your question, Oliver. So, thanks. Let's move on. Two. Um, Gerald. Gerald, do you like it? I got, I got it right on the first try. Uh, if Jaws of the Lion was the only Gloomhaven game to have existed, where would you rank it? Hey, you know what? I talked about this very thing. I thought, I, I thought it was weird, because I remember somebody asking me about this, and I guess it must have been when I scanned your email and saw that Jen wasn't going to have anything, so I put it in the list, and I promptly forgot. But in the back of my mind, I knew there was a question. So I think I've already answered that question. How would I rank it if it were the only Gloomhaven to exist? You then go on. I love legacy games, but are there things that I don't like about them? Um, for instance, uh, Gerald says that he doesn't like new rule. Having to figure out new rules in the middle of the game, he prefers them at the end of the game. That, uh, Gerald, I have to admit, if you hadn't said that, you would have, I would have been, I would have been up a creek. I would have not necessarily, because I, I, my gut, is so, oh, I love everything about them, they're so great, it's so wonderful to have that sense of gravitas, and I don't mind at all the sense of permanence, that's, it's not a bug, it's a feature, I love everything about it, they're so great. But, you remind me, Gerald, that I do think Clank Legacy suffered from its preponderance of, hey, we've we got a good groove, we're playing... Oh, now let's stop for 15 minutes while we learn a new element of this game in the middle of the game. And um, I, I think that's an outlier. I don't think most Legacy games do that. Most Legacy games, for whatever reason, are kind of following the blueprint put down by Pandemic Legacy. Hey, look, this is a standalone game, and after it's done, open some new boxes, get some new stuff, and I think that's great. But I agree. Any legacy game that tries to break... I mean, on some level, I like it. I like the spontaneity and the unpredictability. I like the idea that at any time, the game could change. I think that's probably more welcome in a cooperative game, uh, because in a competitive game where, oh, you know what? The game changed, and there was no way we could anticipate what the change was, and what do you know? It just so happens that this unexpected change benefits you and not me, or me and not you... Even if it doesn't, even if it's carefully calibrated and coordinated to make sure that, oh, it's a change that can't affect anybody, if such a thing is possible, I'll still always feel like it. I'll have this psychological tick in that, oh, did this particular session just get completely knocked off its axis by that? So you're right. I don't like that. I I like some elements of it, but on the whole, I think it's a net negative. And so that would be the thing I don't like about potential ways to implement Legacy style experiences. Let me think. Is there anything else? I'm just thinking. I mean, guys, I played a bunch of legacy games now, and on the whole, I've really loved them all. Even Clank Legacy. Ah, oh, boy, I, I I do not have the imagination. Uh, I do not have the critical faculties. I, in case you haven't seen my show, tend to focus, I tend to accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative. Um, so yeah, I can't think of it. There's probably some stuff, but I'm glad you mentioned that because I agree that can be a problem. Okay. Nigel has a wonderful picture of a dog, which Jen will be seeing later, and uh, has, let's see, two questions. Oh, folks, hang on to your hats. Number two is another another heavy one, but let's go with the easy one first. Secret Endgame Scoring. Uh, During lockdown, Nigel's been playing games with his group via Board Game Arena, Yucatan, etc., and has noticed that some games, for instance, Agricola and Concordia, which are typically scored at the end, now have running totals of scores for each player that are visible to all. I don't mind this... But it does change how the game is played a little, particularly in a game like Concordia, where the end of the game is triggered by players rather than a set number of rounds. Sometimes players will hold back on ending the game quickly if they realize they are in a losing position. Uh, But when playing the physical game, players don't know the scores in such detail and will play more, quote, from the gut. Do you, i.e. me... Oh, I forgot my... I'm not doing my pronoun switcher. Okay, so, Nigel asks, Do I feel that knowing what everyone's score is at any time in such games ruins the experience at all by inducing too much AP, for example? Or do I feel um, it can give the games a little bit of tension and extra urgency? Well, I mean, I think you did sum up the good and the bad. I I think, on the whole, my gut feeling is that's not cool. That's bad. I really enjoy... Uncertainty in games. I definitely love a game where most of the score, if not all of it, is completely obfuscated until the very end, and then everybody reveals, everybody calculates, everybody tallies. I think that is superior on any number of levels. And um, and I have to admit, I've never really thought about it until your question. But my gut feeling is, I find that more enjoyable. One because of the anticipation. It makes the in-game exciting. Because of the butterflies in your stomach, I'm not sure. I think I'm winning right now. I should shut this down now. Or, no, if I shut down, I think she would win right now, so I've got to drag this out. Having that level of uncertainty, I find delicious and definitely enhances the overall experience. And then also, not for nothing, I can definitely think of a poster child for this, Coloma. I hate the mix of, oh, I've got to keep track of some during the game, and i got to do some of it at the end of the game. Because anything that simplifies and streamlines the bookkeeping during play is definitely welcome. Having to remember, wait, 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 did I score my five points for that when I, when I captured that island? I, je- I don't, do you remember if I did? I don't know. I don't know. And there's no way we can know now. That is always a terrible experience. And you know any game that you know features mid-game scoring is susceptible to that, and sooner or later it will happen, and it doesn't ruin the game, but it it weakens the game. I think. So I'm a big fan of keeping all that stuff till the end, and then you've got you know big payday. You just see those scores ramping up. I love using an app called Board Game Buddy that makes tallying scores at the end. It's available on on Android. I don't think it's available on an uh, app on iPhone. I could be wrong about that. I think it's only Android. But it actually makes tallying fun, or at least for me, uh, because it's got a very unique approach to how you can do data entry. And um, you know it really simplifies and streamlines and makes it all very quick. Um, so yeah, I think that what you have identified is definitely a weakness of the online implementation of these games. And if I found myself doing it, playing it, I would spend a lot more time playing those numbers and a lot less time playing the game. And I think that makes the game less fun. Yeah, that, that's That's my final word. And so I hope those sites have the option to turn that off if players want to. And so never mind the fact, all that aside... Talk about thumbing your nose at the intent of the of the designer. The designer ha- made a choice. They wanted their game experience to work a certain way. If they'd wanted it to work a different way, they would have designed it that way. And so, for the implementers of these digital limitations, to say, ah, to heck with you, Matt Gertz. We know better than you how to make your game fun. That's hubris, and I don't like it. I defer to Mac Gertz on Concordia. He has a lot more experience designing games than whatever in, you know code engineer put the implementation together. So, I had a lot to say about that. Uh, a subject which, previous to this second, I had never thought of. Thank you, Nigel. Um, and now, let's move on to your second question, colonialism in games. Given the recent spotlight of uh, BIPOC people in uh, gaming... Uh, and the world in general, I hope. Do you feel that it is time that... Or do I feel... Do, do I, Rado, feel it is time that white publishers finally called it a day on having games with colonial settings? Uh, you know, um, Nigel's not suggesting that they retroactively erase tiles such as Mombasa and Puerto Rico, but going forward, should we be encouraging designers and developers to let go of this subject um, en masse, assuming that the future games in questions are being presented from a white person perspective? I know a lot of people argue that games that deal with the subject can be educational. I believe I did earlier. But I believe that this is something best dealt with the academic situation, i.e. there are plenty of history books and courses out there that can deal with the topic of hand, uh, the topic and the kind of detail it deserves. I worry that even games with a paragraph or two in the rule book attempting to address the history of colonialism are essentially still trivializing the subject by presenting it in a game setting. Do you have any thoughts on how the industry should be addressing this subject moving forward? Best wishes, Nigel. And that was a picture of Charlie. P.S. Charlie is awesome. Um, Nigel, I think actually indirectly, I did address this a bit with Jay's um, Lovecraft. Um, implementation earlier because of course, you know there's a lot of overlap between these., uh, I, and I will to to answer your very specific at the end of the day, these weighty issues are something that is best left to the academia, I think that's wrong. I think that's a mistake. I think if we say, oh, no, nope," let's just leave it up to history textbooks to really delve... I mean, not that history textbooks shouldn't delve deep into this, but I believe pop culture, and I'm including board games in pop culture, have the opportunity, and I will go one step further, this is an evolving stance that I am taking more and more, have the responsibility to use their platform To make the world a better place. Because games are made by human beings. And all human beings have a shared responsibility to each other to leave the world better than what came to us. And now you could disagree, Nigel, and I know a lot of people will. I I suspect Jay might. That, um, with my stance, that using a game as a method to open eyes to the suffering... The indignities, the pain, the um, etc., that our fellow humans face, to to the the shape and nature of the world we live in, and how it came to be because of these historical black spots, to have the opportunity to open somebody's eyes to that, and then not do it, and say, oh, you know what? Okay, I'll just make this about moon bases instead. Sure, fine. You can do that. I won't hold it against you. But I think it's in everybody's best interest to take every opportunity to use whatever platform we have to... um to not let people forget. People who just say, look, I just want to put my blinders on. Everything's fine for me. And, you know, I give to all the right I don't. I, I, I give to charity. And I've got love in my heart. And, you know, I will thumb up things. But really, I just want to close my eyes to all of it. Can I just close my eyes now? I, I think we're in a world where uh, it's time for everybody to open their eyes. And I think games have the ability to do that. And I think Mombasa was a great first step And it is kind of a bummer that Maracaibo, from the same uh, designer, didn't build. Although to be fair, it was a different publisher. Uh, I think it was a different publisher. Didn't build on that and go one step further. I I thought it was amazing that Bombasa, like I said, opens on, hey, this is the reality. And if you're playing this game, you are missing a huge part of history that um, is important. Here's a book to go read. I think every rule book for a game that has anything to do with history, even sections of history that aren't quote problematic, I think all these games should have syllabuses at the end saying, here's further reading. I think every game, um, Coimbra, um, Vasco da Gama, I'm sure there's some history there that I personally don't know that I would like to be made aware of that I wish Vasco da Gama had made me aware of uh, about, you know, the Far East India trade and all that. Shakespeare. I'm literally just looking at games on myself. Foreign Trajanum. The Castles of Burgundy. Um, uh, uh, Lancaster. Lancaster, come on. Talk about... I mean, I love Lancaster. I have played so many hours of Lancaster. Why did the publishers not include, not just as you say, Nigel, a couple of paragraphs, but an entire full page to the history, to the people? Make the world, make history come alive. It's going to make your game better. If I feel like I know more about the principal actors, if I know what is the fundamental drive behind the warfare that I'm engaging in, if I understand more about um, feudalism and its uh, ongoing effects that you know shape the world that exists today, how would anybody not find Lancaster? And I pick Lancaster because, of course, it's not a hot button topic right now, but it is a game that is soaked in history that it completely ignores. How could anybody? not enjoy Lancaster more if there was a whole section of the rules, including, you know, if I really dig uh, Lancaster, oh, maybe I will go on ahead and, um, you know, check out one of these books. Hey, it's only a couple of bucks on, um, on a, you know, whatever iBook reader you use. Or I'll just get it from the local library. I love Lancaster. I would like to know more about this. This is what games can do. And back to my earlier example, this is what Watchmen did. And I think... Watchmen was better for it. And in a small way, society as a whole is better for it because the artists use their platform. Um, And again, as I said to Jay earlier, it's not like board games have the same fidelity that they can bring to bear. Um, Because, you know, they are largely abstract representations of moments in time, and they can't possibly... I mean... The, the human story is implicitly abstracted out. That's the first thing that goes, uh, because these games are really us dealing about economics. But economics shape the world. And the economics of the Renaissance, I am sure, have a direct impact on the economics of the EU today. And why doesn't Coimbra let me know about that? Why not? How could the game not be better? Um, if the publishers don't do that extra little bit of research, that extra little bit of time to make their worlds come to life more. Um, I think that would be amazing. And that's why, to answer your question and Jay's question earlier, I don't think games should be shying away from difficult topics. But I also don't think that they should just wash their hands of the difficult topics and say, oh, well, we're we're just choosing not to focus on that. I think the onus is on all of us to do more. And that's my feeling at this point. And I apologize for anybody who doesn't want to hear this. But folks, I say this with love, you who don't want to hear this, you're the person I want to talk to. I want you to think about just putting your blinders on saying, well, you know what? My life is okay. I'm just worried about my family, my friends, and my kids. I, I can't worry about the world. We all have to worry about the world or the world will never be a better place. Um, you know, if, if we don't all contribute positive forward motion. So that's my feeling, Nigel. Phew, okay. Um, let's move on to um, Hunter. I imagine probably has something a bit lighter. Okay, Recently, Hunter has been working on design of his first game that will be published. Congratulations, Hunter. That is awesome. I'm curious, how much do I, Rado, get to chat with the designers of the game when I do my reviews? Or if I mostly just talk to the publisher slash developer? It's interesting how different companies take such different approaches and wonder how much other game companies have a more hand... Ha- and wonders Hunter, and how much... Other game companies have a more hands-on approach with the designers than I had. Okay, so apparently, Hunter, I'm assuming, and I've certainly heard this, you came up with a design. It was a solid design, big, good enough that a publisher said, okay, we want to make this. And you signed on the dotted line, and they said, okay, thanks, Hunter, we'll take it from here. And, um, you know, and, and they'll do what they do. That's not at all uncommon. And then your job, Hunter, is to move on to the next game. And you're right, I am sure there are other designers... Who uh, enjoy the benefit of being very deeply involved every step of the way, signing off on every piece of art the artist makes? You'll write a first refusal, all kinds of things. It's it's a whole spectrum. I'm certain. Personally, I don't have much experience in this regard. It sounds like you're a bit um, disappointed that you've had to uh, walk away and let others finish what you started, and I totally appreciate that. That must be incredibly frustrating. Um, and you know, you know just a Cross your fingers and hope they do right. To, but to answer your question, um, it, it varies from game to game, and uh, oh yeah, there is there is no one answer. I would it, it it's generally speaking, generally speaking, probably the majority of the time, a publisher if they're a big enough publisher they have somebody who handles their PR. And that person contacts me and said, Hey, Rada, would you be interested in that? And I reply, Could you please send me the rules? I'll take a look. And then they do. And then I read the rules. And then I say yes or no. And then they send me the game. And then that's it. Um, uh, maybe I'll remember to say, Hey, I got the game. Thanks. Although I'm really terrible about doing that. I apologize to every publisher. I know it's very frustrating that I don't let you know because they're always wondering, Did it make it? Did it get lost in the mail? Um, but then, at some point in the future, I'll film the game. and uh, you know, And that's... That's probably the case nine out of 10 times. Um, yeah, almost without exception. Uh, and if I have a problem with the game, because it's a retail game, to be fair, sometimes I'm getting the game ahead of the retail public. But what I will often do, if you, I talked about this earlier, if you subscribe to me on Board Game Geek, you will often know what games are going to be covered in the upcoming weeks, because you see me on board BoardGameGeek uh, being the first person to ever post in the rules thread, how does this work? And then I hope, because I'm trying to act as a... as a... Uh, what do you call it? A consumer. A consumer does not have the ear of the designer of a game, or the publisher, or anything like that. Yes, I could. I could just go find... I probably have the email for a high-level muckety-mucks at... Wherever, and I could just get the answers I need. But I try to not do that, and I just go to Board Game Geek and I ask questions. And sometimes, Hunter, that's when the designer who has been left out of the process comes along and says, Oh, wow, I'm really glad to hear you're going to be covering my game. Uh, And I've seen this, and this always surprised me. I don't know if the publisher has changed this, but this was my design. And it's often, I often notice it is amazing to me how board game publishers completely ignore Board Game Geek and just leave um, end users flapping in the wind. Normally, designers will come in and you'll give their two cents or even play testers. Uh, But the publishers, they just... I don't know. It's weird. I've talked about Scott Alden with this many, many times. It's just mind-boggling to me why publishers don't make more use of the most powerful tool at their disposal to um, build a community around their game they just ignore it over and over and over again. I guess it's a not-invented-here kind of thing. Look, if we're going to build a community around our game, we want it to be on our website, not on Scott Alden's website. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But anyway. Um, so sometimes that'll happen. But usually, in all honesty, if it's a final retail game, I um, you know, if I'm really stuck, I'll ask questions. Uh, if I can figure it out, I think I'll just go ahead and film. And then if it turns out I'm wrong, Paula will correct it. But I'll probably point out in my final thoughts, yeah, I was really in the dark on this. The, the rules really left me eye and dry, and I'll, and I'll call that out as a weakness of the game. Um, so that's all about retail games, which it sounds like that's what you've got going. And uh, And I think that's important, because I do want the experience that I relate in, on my videos to be reflective of the experience you will get at home. And you, as a as a consumer, won't have in your Rolodex the lead designer who you can just call anytime you want or write an email to, and you know they'll respond to you. So that's how I tend to go about it. Kickstarters are very different, though. Kickstarters, by definition, almost without exception, are still in flux by the time they hit my table. And um, often, they will end up changing because... I played it, and I will give them feedback, or I will complain about stuff in my video, and what do you know? When the game came out eight months later, uh, like, I mean, the biggest one I can think of is Ryan Lockett's Islebound, that I complained about how they didn't really do any two-player tightening of the board, and I said, well, this this is what I would have done, and then when the retail game came out, hey, that's what Ryan did. He he just did it, and it's like, oh yeah, the game's really good for two-player now. What do you know? It's like I was a designer for 20 years. Go figure. Um, so under those circumstances, Kickstarter games, there will often be a lot of back and forth. And it usually will start out with the publisher, but the reality under those circumstances is usually the publisher like, look, look, I'm just trying to get my numbers to work. I don't have time to do this. Can I just CC in the designer and he can talk to you about that? I can't tell you how many times that has happened. Um, all of this is underlining one of the many reasons I often say that I think Kickstarter is such an amazing thing for the industry as a whole. It means so many games are being released closer to the original designer intent. It means we are seeing games that we would never have been published. Gloomhaven, as we know it today, never would have been published if it hadn't been for Isaac just doing something insane by himself on Kickstarter. No no publisher prior to Gloomhaven would have touched it with a 10-foot pole. Um, so I think Kickstarter is amazing, and this is a little personal reason because I really enjoy that uh, doing back and forth with the designers. Well, what did you really mean by that? And I think often it's 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 a double-edged sword. My final thoughts on a Kickstarter game are not I cannot be considered 100% reflective of the real game, and I often point this out in when I'm doing my final thoughts. Please remember, folks, this is a pr- this well, this is a paid Kickstarter preview. I mentioned that, and I also say remember this is a prototype. They're still tweaking stuff right now. Um, and also, well, I never talk about, because it it would require this much verbiage, but I had an experience playing this game that you never will, because I, in a very, very tiny way, became, for a brief moment, kind of a co-developer of this game, because I was talking with the designer and had a back and forth about it. And maybe that changed the game, maybe it didn't, but it changed my view of the game in a way that wouldn't have happened in a retail environment. So, that's kind of how that works out. That was very long-winded and rambly, but uh, there you go, Hunter. And good luck on the game. Uh, congratulations again. That's, that is a hard thing to do. Scott uh, says that the Glenmore 2 box art is great. And Scott really wishes they had carried it through the game. The colors in the game are dark and drab. Why can't all games be as bright as Raiders of the North Sea, Isle of Sky, Coimbra, etc.? What's the process for art on board games and the difference to video games? Because, of course, you know I have a video game background. Could board games benefit from video game influence? Um, I can't say. I am not an art director on any board game. All I can do is offer my guesses. And you are definitely right. It's interesting. I don't know, Scott, if you if you go on Board Game Geek um, you can, and go to the Glenmore 2 page, you can look... At some of the early art proofs. Because the, you know, the publisher said, hey, look, here's the early art of what the tiles are going to look like. And they are much brighter and sheerier and less... I mean, there's no other word for it. Gloomy. Glenmore 2 is a dark, gloomy presentation of a game. And it didn't have to be that way. So there's two reasons that might have happened. Either... It was an unfortunate... This does happen sometimes. It was an unfortunate breakdown of communication between the publisher and the manufacturer. And the the manufacturer said, look, here's our proof prints. This is what it is. And they said, okay, this looks great. Oh, but it's a little dark. Do you promise it'll be better? And they say, yep, don't worry. We're increasing the saturation. It'll be fine. And then it turns out, oh, it looked like the proof. I know that kind of stuff happens a lot. I suspect that's how you got the crazy yellow um, terrain... Boards in um, era, medieval age, as an example, because nobody could have looked at it and said, Yeah, that's what we want. Bright eye burning, retina destroying orange. Nobody wanted that. Um, and I bet you there was a breakdown there. And maybe that happened in, in Glenmore, too. It could very well have been. And my evidence for that would be go look at what they, the first pass of that art looked like much brighter, much cheerier The exact same art, just with the, uh, co- with, with the saturation and the contrast and the gain tweaked in a different way. So the other reason it might have happened is because it was an actual artistic choice that the developers made, and you know, and and honestly, that would be my assumption that that's the way it went. And I can, and here's why I would imagine the developers of Glenmore Two made that choice. I can think of a couple of reasons. One, the year prior, um, Brass Birmingham and Lancashire blew up, and everybody, well, not everybody, but most people loved on. Brass Birmingham and Lancashire's really dark and gloomy presentation, and uh, and I can imagine the gloomhaven or the Glenmore. I have no inside information. I've never talked to them about this, but I can imagine they were saying, "Wow, that really struck a chord." And and and, and maybe it wasn't that. Maybe, it, "Wow, we really like that look. It gives it a more elegant feel, a more emotional, atmospheric feel. You know, there, there's more depth and texture to the." evocative nature of the game, um, and we'd like that, let's apply that to the art we've already got. Or maybe let's apply it because people clearly dug it in brass. Or maybe somebody, I mean, I don't know anybody on the team, but maybe there's somebody in the development team who is actually properly Scottish and said, hey, you know what? 90% of the year it is not hyper bright and sunny and you know super saturated colors in my country. It's raining and gray and miserable most of the time. If you want to be true to the Scottish Highlands, maybe you should reflect that in your art because you are not being true to the reality of it. You know, I'm not saying any of these happens, but any of them could have been the reason that the art went through such a big change. And you know what? If if it was any of those reasons, then I disrespect the artistic intent. It's interesting. I mean... Go. You see this all the time in movies. Watch a trailer for a movie, and everything is super bright. Everything, you know, I mean, the 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 contrast is cranked way up. The the gamma is cranked way up. And when you see those trailers, you can see everything. And then when you eventually watch the movie, it's like I remember seeing this because you know, I saw this trailer twenty times. It was not dark. I did not have to squint. I mean, go look at the trailers for Star Wars Solo, and then look at the final movie. Obviously, the uh, what the cinematographers, the director of art or design, whoever made artistic choices, and I think they made poor choices. And I wish the movie looked more like the trailers did. That's what that's what happened with Glenn Moore. And um, yeah, I, I still think the game looks great. Granted, when I play games, it's in a very brightly well lit room with a lot of natural light and a lot of strong overhead light. So when I saw it. It did not really strike me that they were particularly dark, but um, still, I I, I totally get it, and that would be kind of my assumption. The video game industry, I don't know. I don't think so. I I don't know that in this regard, there's any real overlap there. Um, I can tell you, from my experience in the video game industry, one of the biggest problems by far that artists face is lack of universal calibration of televisions or monitors... Uh, they're just all over the place. And TV manufacturers, they, to make you buy them at the store, they artificially crank up everything to the nth degree, so it it makes your eyeball your eyeballs can't help but be drawn to these TVs, so you're more likely to buy them. And then you get them at home, and that's their default settings. You're like, oh my god. You know, the, the, the makers of films are like, oh my god, I can't believe people are watching my, my my masterwork, and it looks like that. That looks like garbage. Please calibrate your TVs. Board games, I guess, to a certain extent, they um, they're going directly into everybody's eyes. There's nothing in between, other than just ambient lighting of the room, I suppose. Sorry, that has nothing to do with anything. But I'm, you know, there. I remember in the later days of my video game career, there was always a push. I don't know if they still do this. Maybe they just do it on a console level now. Um, back in my time, they didn't. But just like, uh, hey, before you can play this game, you must adjust these sliders to where you can see everything to the left but you can't see everything to the right so that you can get the right black levels and stuff like that. Um, Sorry. That just popped in my head because you mentioned the video game overlap. I don't know uh, if that answered your question or not, but we're going to move on to Alan, who wonders if I have any updates, any update on my submission to change Oath from Legacy to Campaign. Did I make a submission for that? I'm going to take your word that I did. Uh, And did they not? I don't know. Let me look. Did I make that? Oath. Oath. I am searching my geek mail. Um, because either they would have accepted or declined it, because I do these things all the time. So I mark things as, no, this is not that mechanism, or you forgot this mechanism, or it's really a two-player game. Come on. etc., etc. Right. I am searching, and... Uh, okay, yes. I have a response here about Oath Chronicles Empires. Alright. Oh, okay. Nope, nope. This was not about that. Wait, wait. Oh, okay. okay. I was just checking out okay, it going. Oh, no, no. This was back and forth with Adrian, who's doing my Game of Interest Geek list. So that's not it. All righty. And then oh, there's Adrian again. Hi, Adrian, if you're listening. Promos. Okay. um, I guess... I'm sorry, Alan. I don't remember this conversation at all. Apparently, I said I was going to do it, and I didn't do it. Because it has always been my experience that the moderators on Board Game Geek, when I make any submission, will come back a week later, because they've got such a backlog, and they will either approve or decline, or they will ask me for more information. And uh, clearly, that has never happened here, so I guess I never got around to doing it. And I have to admit, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I don't remember this conversation at all. Oath, I think, is from Leader Games, right? I don't know enough about the game, but... Uh. Right, anyway, you continue. You submitted... One with information from the Kickstarter itself, saying it's not a legacy game and both definitions of legacy, mechanism and family from uh, but it's but it is listed as legacy. and but that was ignored. Are you saying, Alan, that you never got a response? That is never in my experience. And I should say, of course, Maybe that's not my experience now, because, hey, I'm Rado, and they got to listen. But I used to make changes and additions and modifications. I might be the person who actually got Seven Wonders officially listed as a two-player game, because for the longest time, it was a three-player game. And I'm sure I submitted that, along with other people, when I found out that there was a two-player variant in the box. And I've I've never not gotten responses. So I'm not sure what happened there. Um, Geek mail me directly, and I'll look into it. And yeah, because... It drives me nuts. The false categorization of legacy, people using legacy and just slapping it on anything when legacy has a very specific meaning. And I think it's, in this case, I mean, honestly, a lot of the time I'm pretty comfortable with, you know, kind of loosey-goosey, hey, it's less about proper definitions of words. It's more about just ensuring people know what you mean. Uh, you know, and if the context allows you to know what it means, I don't mind if a word changes and evolves. I'm constantly arguing with people saying, well, strictly speaking, decimate means only one tenth of the forces were removed, and that's not what you meant. It's like, get over it, dude. Lance Mikester specifically. Language evolves. And anytime anybody says decimate, there is a common cultural understanding of what that means, and you are just holding on to an era of antiquities definition that nobody has used for hundreds of years. Get over it. Uh, But anyway, uh, sorry. Uh, But in this case, because there is already a perfectly functioning term that everybody understands, campaign, and people keep falsely calling their campaign games legacy games, I do want to hold on to legacy because it is such... I mean, because there's, there's no other word for it. And I would hate to give up the ease of the shortcut of being able to say legacy. I have no use for the shortcut of saying reduce an enemy's forces by 10%. I don't mind that Decimate's original meaning has gone away because it has no function. The t- function of legacy as a definition is very important. So like I said, geek mail me, Alan. And um, I will submit this because now is not the time. Okay. And last one, Stephen. Let's see, we're still recording. Oh, I'd hate if we weren't. Yes, we are. Good. Steven says he hopes Jen and I are doing well. Steven has a game-related question about Pipeline. Uh, he's looking to get it, but Jen and I have, a similar, have similar board game temperaments as Steven and his wife. Assuming that I had the opportunity to cover it, I did, and assuming, or, which maybe I didn't because Capstone didn't reach out, no, I'm pretty sure I had the opportunity and I said no. Why did I decline covering Pipeline? I can answer that question. Because, honestly, I don't blame you, Stephen. That game looks... Or, Stephen. I never know. I'll assume, Stephen. Um, that game looks fantastic, and I've heard nothing but great things about it. Here's why I said no. I don't have fun with certain themes. I, as I said earlier, I'm a, theme, uh, I'm a theme bloodhound, and I have a hard time enjoying games with certain themes. Consuming alcohol is one of them. Not that I'm a t—I am a teetotaler, but I don't begrudge anybody having fun drinking. I just come from a I, I, alcohol is a big part of my family dynamic, and I just I, I have a hard time enjoying games about consuming alcohol. I've recently decided I don't think I can enjoy games about the modern fossil fuel industry either, for largely the same reason, because I'll spend too much time thinking about the problems. Um, you know, a game that is about the fossil fuel industry, but that offers alternatives like Manhattan Project Energy Empire? Yes, please. Or games that really dig down into, yeah, you can go, you can double down on fossil fuels. Look how it's destroying the planet. Again, Manhattan Project Energy Empire? Yes, please. Um, but I saw none of that in Pipeline. Pipeline was just all about, hey, yeah, crude oil is great. How can we get more of it? And how can we make the most money we can off it? And like, ugh, that just makes me squirm. Thinking about it. So that's why I skipped on it. But I, I'm sure it's great. But here's the deal. Here's the deal, Stephen. You're in luck. If that might have bothered you in the same way it bothered us, um, let's see. Let me, I'm going to do a search for Pipeline. And I'm going to find the designer after I find Pipeline from 2019. And the designer specifically, Ryan Courtney. I believe Ryan Courtney is not done with the ideas. No, he is not. Ryan Courtney is coming back in 2020 with a cute little game called Curious Cargo. And as I understand it, this game is all the cool stuff from Pipeline, namely the tile laying and you know, creating all the you know shunting stuff around from place to place, which is the thing I really wanted to see in Pipeline, but none of the, hey, let's destroy the world and profit off it at the same time. Yes! So Curious Cargo is coming soon, and I am very much looking forward to that. So uh, that is it, and that was just a little bit more insight into how I choose what games I cover. And that's it, folks. We are diggity-dog done with the games portion. And now if you hold on, we'll be right back, although I won't record it till tomorrow, because Jen's doing glass today. And we'll see what Jen has to say about what is what right after this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Although, at this point, I do not remember when I last spoke to you because Jen apparently has more important things to do than uh, give you her words of wisdom in this podcast format.
1: Am I here? I am here.
0: Uh, How many days have I been pestering you about it? Well, I don't know. Many.
1: We played games all day yesterday, so that Mm -hmm. was your choice.
0: Well, okay, folks. I guess that means I put gaming before I put you. All right. And um, with that out of the way, it's time for the personal Q&A. Although actually, I don't remember much about what I said in the gaming stuff (laughs) several days ago. I do remember there was a lot of politics. Sorry about that. Apologies for folks who are put off by it. Um, And I do, I remember almost immediately after stopping, I wanted to hastily add, not that Twitter isn't hugely problematic as well. When I did my Facebook rant, Twitter... I mean, geez, Louise, what has just now ter- ter- happened to Eric Lang on Twitter? If you don't know, definitely do a search for or Google Eric Lang Twitter and you can see just how problematic that platform is, too. Um, but, you know, we can only hope that they're all getting better. And anyway, though, uh, with all of that out of the way, I am going to jump to the personal questions and answers section. Where we are going to start out with David, who asks, have we ever seen Shiro and Suki videos on YouTube? Apparently they are a pair of Shiba Inus that live in Malta, and he thought we might be interested. Oh. Can you speak? Uh, apparently the answer is no. Yeah, and the thing it it is it how is that's not going to be a particularly interesting thing for people to listen to. And oh, look, dogs. Well, okay. Shiro, S-H-I-R-O, and Suki. Okay uh jen is now going to look them up whatever they are and folks all i'll be able to confirm is that in theory they are in fact dogs you have to do a search for malta probably but um yep they are dogs and they're very cute speaking of dogs i actually i think weren't there a couple of dog pictures that i said to show jen that were in the gaming ones Jen is now watching a video of him. He's a very cute dog. Yeah, it's, it's reunion time it's for Shira, reunion. Shira and Suki. Oh, okay. Now, folks, you just get to listen to us watch a video of dogs. No, you keep talking. I can... Uh, okay. Oh, fine. I don't get to watch them then. All right. That's fine. That's fine. That's okay. <laughs> and um, anyway, anyway, other folks, apparently there's a whole bunch of videos. Yep. Uh, I've right.
1: closed it now. Okay.
0: Okay. But let's actually get to a real question, perhaps, uh, from Jack who points out that I missed the picture of his dog in one of the last replies. Apparently, this is going to be Jen Review's dog pictures, the podcast. Uh, all right. The dog was not pleased. It might have been my fault, though, because it was in a weird format. It reattached for a JPEG. Honey, here's a picture of a dog. And oh,
1: oh that's a cute look at that one. It looks like a cocker spaniel.
0: Yep. Does he always have that droopy? Okay. I'm sorry, folks. It's a very cute, we're going to assume, cocker spaniel, all toasty warm Mm. under a very nice blanket. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing, Jack. Um, But I'm sure... Right. Jack also says, Jen, in the last podcast, I alluded to the sweat equity and hard work of taking care of chickens. Jack has been interested in getting into it, but being lazy... I feel you, Jack. (laughs) Worries about what the work would be required... What do you do on a day-to-day basis to take care of them chickens?
1: Okay. Day-to-day what, basis. And what
0: is physically the hardest thing you have to do?
1: Oh, physically the hardest That's, thing. You
0: also added that. On yeah. a
1: day-to-day basis.
0: Well, I mean, uh, day-to-day, what is the workload that they per- bring into your life? And on top of that, what is the single hardest thing you have to deal with?
1: Okay. If you people don't care about chickens, you should probably fast forward like five ten minutes because I can go on about this. Sorry,
0: gonna... folks. I can't really break down the personal into the Star Wars section, the chicken section, the tea <laughs> section, the looking at dog pictures section. Uh, although maybe I need section. to start doing that. I don't know.
1: Okay. Well, anyway, day to day, what you have to do for chickens. First of all, um, I'm going to presume that you're going to store your chickens in a coop overnight so that they do not get eaten by raccoons or dogs or other wildlife. In what New else medicine.
0: would you do?
1: Oh, well, in Malta, we didn't have that problem, so they just lived out in the backyard. Okay. Remember? They yeah. didn't have yeah, an yeah. actual coop? Yeah. Okay, but let's assume that you are going to have to have yours in a some sort of a, you know, building-type item. So you will have to let them out of the building-type item uh, if you've got a yard for them, and I hope that you will, of course, because they like sunshine and fresh air and scratching around in the dirt. Um I have always had an automatic door when I've had chickens in coops. And basically, it's light sensor, so it will open the door and at dawn and close it at dusk. And chickens are smart enough to get themselves in before dusk, 95% of the time. So that is very handy. Unfortunately, the one we bought here in America um, was pretty crappy. and it,
0: The light sensor door opener thing.
1: Yeah, the light sensor um Doesn't work anymore. So basically, we've just got the little door now that we have to now physically go out and let them out in the morning and close the door to you know seal them in at night. So that's definitely a daily thing that needs to be done.
0: I wouldn't call that a hardship in any way, though.
1: No, I wouldn't either. So, uh, but it's it it can be automated. Same thing with food and water. You can totally automate feeding and watering your chickens by oh, there's just all sorts of kit out there that. Uh, and if you want to know more, let me know. Just suffice it to say that there is stuff. Um, if you don't, I think it's great fun to feed your chickens. Sunflower seeds, mealworms, you know, scratch, which has corn and other grains in it. Because they love it. Love, 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 love it. And they're fun to watch. So my chickens have uh, a treetle feeder, which keeps the rats and mice and stuff out of it. And then I also scatter treats for them a couple times a day um, and interact with them. So I think that's fun. That could be considered work. Did you do that while I was away? Yes. Was it work? No. Okay. Um, I've just been away for about a month, so that's why I'm asking him. It's all fresh in his mind. Mm-hmm. So let's see. What else? Um, they My chickens have a roost in this shed that we converted over for them. It's a 2 by four that is about 6 inches off of a shelf that's in this shed the shelf has some uh, pine shavings on it and they get up there they settle down for the night and chickens poop a lot overnight so basically that's kind of the grossest um, least fun thing that I think chickens require is you have to clean up poop because it's not healthy for them to be breathing in the ammonias and stuff from the waste uh, waste W-A-S-T-E. So you have to do that once a week, I think, right? I do it usually twice a week. And in the summer, oh. I do it more often because with the warmer temperatures, it um, sort of, you know, smells more and um, gets gets grosser faster. But in the wintertime... I and guess you could I'm,
0: make that job a lot easier than it is because you're just trying to be hyper-efficient and reuse chicken feed bags and just trying to use a spatula, shovel thing to scrape the poop off of the shelf into the chicken feed bag. But you know what? Chicken feed bags don't have big orifices. And so you're trying to hold the chicken feed bag with one hand, which means you're going to get chicken crap all over it as you're <laughs> pouring it in, and half of it's going to land on the floor, and then you got to go and pick it up anyway. And it's just... I mean, I'll say the way Jen has that set up is such an insanely huge royal pain. It doesn't have to be. We just have, need to have a nice big garbage can with a nice big thing so it all just goes in easy. Sorry, I'm kind of bitter about that, because I had to do that while Jen was gone, and I did not find that pleasant at all. No, you let I was, it
1: go for like a couple weeks, so I'm sure it was absolutely disgusting. Uh,
0: it wasn't that bad. Oh. Uh, no, I mean, genuinely, I, I understand you're worried about it, but I'm, I'm telling I know you are hypersensitive. I was able to go in there, and you said, oh my god, you must, you must have almost passed out. I was like, no, it's really not that big a deal. But still, it does need to be done. And like everything else about the chickens, you can set yourself up to where that's really... Not much of an inconvenience. Unfortunately, that is not one of the things that Jen has set up to avoid it being an inconvenience, and it is a huge inconvenience currently.
1: Well, there's and there's some other things you can set up your coop so that it's got um wire and an open floor underneath it, so it just drops onto you know, say the ground underneath it. So, there's there's you can you can do some searching on efficient coop designs and come up with your own best idea. So, anyway, um I would but for me, that's the least enjoyable part of having chickens, is of course scooping the poop. On the other hand, um, I put them in these chicken, empty chicken food bags, and I store them and let them sort of weather over a couple of months, and then I use them in the garden. Um, so I'm I love it that I have all of this fresh, natural manure, and it filled up all of our garden beds this spring when we made new ones. So if I didn't if I had it in a garbage can, I don't know. A garbage can my...
0: with a garbage bag in the garbage can and then you could fill up the garbage bags.
1: Well, but the thing is that the chicken foods um, bags are porous. A garbage bag is not. So mm. it's never going to be able to sort of.
0: Mmm. I see. Yeah. I mean, yes. I hadn't really mm. thought
1: about that particularly, but that's why I do what I do. All right. Okay. Um. Also in, when we were in England, I just had compost bins, so I would just, put it directly in the compost bins, throw weeds in there, put more poop on it, throw weeds in, and it composted itself. The worms did all the work. It was wonderful. So I just don't have that set up here. Um, what else about chickens? Um, so you need to feed them, you need to water them, you need to keep them reasonably clean. Oh, collecting eggs! Definitely not a hardship. Did you have any problem
0: No nope.
1: collecting eggs? Uh, we love collecting eggs. Oh, so much fun. It's so good. And, you know, this will surprise you, but if you've never had eggs laid directly from a chicken, they're warm when they come out of the chicken. So you can pick up warm eggs out of your nest box and you'll be like, oh my gosh, they're warm. Because, you know, most people have never felt a warm egg before. Uh, so that's kind of a fun thing. Let's see, what else? What else? What else? What else?
0: The, the long story short, there's very little that's arduous or painful on a day-to-day basis. They're fairly low maintenance. Um, but the that belies the fact that that it is to get them into a fairly low-maintenance state is a fairly significant investment. In, and that was a lot of work. Jen just said very blithely, oh, we just converted a shed that was already here. And it wasn't as simple as that. It's That's a true. lot of work to do.
1: We cut a hole for the, we for had the do- chicken door, and then we cut a hole to put the nest box
0: Yep. In. And yeah, I mean... No, there's more to it than that. I mean, we had to you wanted to take that whole shed apart at one point. It was absolutely insane., uh, well, that's that, not true. It, I
1: wanted to take a shelf down.
0: Yes, which was actually structurally required for the entire shed. Um, so it's it's there's a lot of there's not much sweat equity once you get them up and running. It's getting up and running. Getting the automated treedle feeder and getting them to the point where they aren't afraid of it, so they will just feed themselves automatically, and all you have to do is the fun stuff of scattering around sunflower seeds every once in a while, and um, you know, getting a watering system that again they're not terrified of, and that they will actually get water oh. instead of oh, let's just try to go find some muddy no. puddle somewhere. They'll
1: well, they'll drink anything. It, really. you, I'm just
0: saying. It was, it,
1: no, there was, there's never been a problem with them.
0: Right, but you had to you had to build that thing basically. Um, either that, or you have to go out and buy a lot of equipment, which no, Jen you already don't. said, You—you one of the first things you said was, you can you can buy, you can make a lot of investments.
1: Yeah, but that's if you're going to, if you know you love chickens and you're going to, like, I just, yeah, I wouldn't have bought a big fancy nest box of aluminum if I didn't think I was going to have chickens for the rest of my right.
0: life. You're talking to people who are thinking about it and are trying. I'm, okay, well, I'm they just don't mean that. I know, well, but I mean, but you said if... I mean, but you you assume, look, we've got all these tools and whatnot that we invested a lot of time and not an insignificant amount of cash to get it mm-hmm. into a situation where they now 90% take care of themselves, which is fantastic with automatic door opener and closers and recalibrating sensors. Okay, and- but
1: let's talk about the money then. I think yes. that automatic door closer thing was 100, 150, 125, something yep. like that yep. for the door and the electronic component thingy. That has since gone haywire. Yeah. By the way, if anybody knows how to fix circuits on things, send us an email. We'll, we'll mail you this thing, and you can fix it for me. And I'll, <laughs> I'll give you some glass. <laughs>
0: You're suggesting you are literally going to put that in the mail and have somebody take it apart and resolder the busted stuff inside after running ohm meters and whatnot through it. I
1: don't know. I don't know anything about that stuff, but I assume somebody must know about it. Okay. Okay, and the computer guys in a nearby town are not returning our calls. Okay. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so that was like 120 bucks or whatever. The treedle feeder was probably 100 bucks, but I had them um, in Malta where I said we didn't have to have a coop, but we did have lots of right mice and rats. And I will tell you, that treedle feeder is worth its weight in gold because I don't like rats, and I don't like mice and, ah, disease. So... I think that is well worth it, but you can, you can do other things with your food. You can have it in a, in a bowl out there and they will certainly eat it and just pick up the bowl at night so that you're not feeding the rats. So it doesn't have to be really expensive, but Hey, I like a treatle feeder. So if you want to know which one I've got, I did some research. I think I've got the best kind anyway, and I make no money off of it by Mm -hmm. referring it. So all of this stuff is just benefit of my experience. Um, the watering system we've got is a, um, What are they called bucket a bucket with a lid on it and then off of ebay i think i spent three dollars on chicken nipples and if you google chicken nipples you will see there they're little um, plastic thingies with little metal tongues sticking out and you basically drill a hole in the bucket you screw this nipple into the hole and then fill the bucket with water and then the chickens can nuzzle that little metal tongue and get the water that they need and it keeps the water clean uh, you can have a whole bucket full, so that might last your chickens a week, maybe. Yeah,
0: because you got to work out how to get it in your yard in such a way that they won't knock it over all the time by accident. And even still, they will still from time to time, so you got to get that level and balanced. <sighs> I mean, there's, I'm just saying, you're very quick to forget... All the little things. And just as, in the same way that you're quick to assume, oh, that only took a half an hour. Yeah. And then it ends up taking three hours. You're also quick to, six years later, yeah, that only took a half an hour, as I predicted. No, it didn't. <laughs> is basically all I'm saying. I mean, these are all doable things. And barring the spending the time to research chicken nipples and your first bucket of chicken nipples didn't work, if I recall correctly, and you had to do a second one because something went wrong with the first one and it leaked. So, I mean, there's all these little things that just pile up. And for someone like Jack who's thinking... I don't know. I'd like chickens, maybe. I, I'm just suggesting, don't jump in. Do all this amazing amount of stuff to get into this perfect circumstance. And you're like, yeah, they're okay. I don't know if it was worth it. I mean, if and if you're going to take a measured, step-by-step approach... I mean, not that Jen ever did that. The first flock of I chickens did. we had was a big flock of chickens, and you converted another shed into... <laughs> No, I
1: bought a shed. Remember, yes, I, literally- bought, I bought one of these little coops that looked so cute. And it said, oh, it'll hold four hens. And I'm like, well, cool. Well, no, they don't hold four hens. They hold one or two, maybe. Um, so anyway, yeah, I sold that one on and converted a shed because that's the best kind of chicken coop, I think, because you can get into it and you can do the cleaning that you need to do. And not be stooping yeah. over and all sorts of crazy gyrations. Yeah,
0: but I mean, for a lot of people, that means oh, okay, I have to go out and buy a shed and build a shed now so that I can have my. I mean, not everybody just happens to move into a house where there's a unused shed in the okay. backyard. Well, I'm just saying. So the, I've seen what's people it, what's... that
1: use ki- little kitty houses. Those plastic children mm-hmm. playhouses mm-hmm. for coops. Those mm-hmm. are adorable. You just but you have to secure them. Of course, yep. by putting chicken wire or something on the yep. windows.
0: Yeah, that's the other. That's the other thing too. Is running chicken line. Um, you'll have to do that. So, we were in a situation where we were able to set it up relatively easily with just you know an industrial level stapler. I mean, but <laughs> I don't know, you might not care. You might not care to actually put a bunch of staples into your garage on the side of your garage that will ultimately rust and whatnot. But we're like, okay, we care more about the chickens than the long term um, integrity of the side of our garage. And yeah, we don't mind just doing big staples into it.
1: Well, yes, but we've also just used a regular stapler as well to Mm -hmm. staple up the...
0: Yes, and that stuff ultimately falls down, as it's falling down again right now. Oh, yes. I'm just suggesting, Jack, it's not as easy as she makes it out to be. Okay. It can be gotten... It sounds
1: like we're fighting about this. Uh, Yes. And I think he's just trying to portray a different perspective.
0: Someday somebody asked Jen about how easy is it to teach somebody to ski. (laughs) Um, and I think that will, um, you know, give more clarity onto our relative perspectives of things. But the important thing is our day to day is, it's almost nothing. The, like Jen said, the worst thing is
1: once a week or twice a week maybe. is is having to,
0: yeah. And, and, and that is, and that's not even hard. It's just really unpleasant. Um, physically the hardest thing, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if if Jackie, if you're saying you have limited mobility or something like that. Uh, probably the hardest thing is it, they will have occasionally get out of the coop. And then, um, depending on their personality, you'll have to chase them all over the place. So that could be a problem for some people, um, actually trying to catch them.
1: Yeah. But if you, if you start with chicks or if you hand feed them, of course they will come to you. They will learn that you are a good person and you're not going to hurt them. Mm-hmm. But chickens in general think everything is there to kill them.
0: Yes. And hence the name chicken.
1: Yep. So they will think that there's any, any new bit of kit, any new, uh, you know, fencing, any new food, any new creature nearby, whatever, everything they are chicken of. So it does take a little while to let them adapt to whatever is new. Duck actually, uh, when I was gone, was going to do a a picture of the chickens stampeding out of the coop because we have this other area and they just love to get on this other area, but they have to run through the chicken run area to get to this, this other grassy area. And so he put his camera down in the middle of the run, you know, so that they would come roaring out the chicken coop door, past the camera on their way to the field, but of course they came to a screeching halt when they saw the camera because that wasn't there before. Yep, and, and it
0: was clearly going to kill them.
1: Yep, yep. So anyway, it was it was hilarious. He sent me the video. Yep. I, I yeah,
0: that didn't work out so well, unless you happen to be a hardcore fan of these specific chickens. Yep, and will laugh at anything they do. Um. I would say certainly the hardest thing you ever had to do and you've had to do it multiple times is a genuine literal tracheotomy because oh, okay, well, you had, was it just one chicken who had that problem?
1: I've, I've done it on a couple chickens. In fact, I did it on one on one of Louise's chickens too. Oh wow. Yeah. So basically what happened is I let them eat freshly mown long bits of grass. Long meaning, I don't know. Well, anything probably more than three inches. It would be long for chickens. And, chickens when they eat they don't actually have a a direct path to the stomach what they eat goes into a little sack in their necks called a crop and it's just this bit of sack and it can expand or contract or whatever but it's basically where chickens store their food until they get around to uh, actually digesting it because they could be out and about and they don't want to you know take the time to digest it if they're out and about Anyway, so chickens will eat stuff, it stays in the crop, and then at some point the crop muscles contract and they shove what's in the crop down into the gizzard where it gets ground up and then it goes onto the stomach and through the intestines and so on. So what had happened is the chickens ate all of this long grass and basically it balled up in their, well, this one particular chicken I had in in her crop. And so basically she had like this, um, what is it, a hairball that cats get Mm -hmm. from licking essentially a grass ball in her crop and you could feel on her crop. It was like she had a tennis ball in there and that's pretty big on a chicken. It was probably about the size of a tennis ball. And basically she would have starved to death because the food that she's eating goes into the crop and it basically rots in there because the muscles, the crop muscles cannot squeeze this tennis ball down a a straw size esophagus basically into the gizzard. So, when I saw this going on, uh, you know, we tried a bunch of stuff. We tried some medicine. We tried making her throw it up, etc., etc. Anyway, she was just getting weaker and weaker and thinner and thinner. So ba- I, I thought she's going to die anyway. So I saw some videos online about how to uh, get into the crop and and pull out that gunk, and it was awful. Oh my God! It smelled so horrible. It was just, ugh. ah. Anyway. So, basically, that's what I did. It wasn't a tracheotomy. You cut through the first layer of skin, and then you cut into the crop. It was two layers. You pulled all that gunk out, and then you stitched it back up. I out. don't know.
0: What you th- what do you think a tracheotomy is?
1: A tracheotomy is into your actual esophagus.
0: Yes, but it is still just cutting through flesh to get at stuff that you're not supposed to be able to get to because it's surrounded by flesh. Okay, well, In the neck area. All right. <laughs> it was, I'm saying you're ready to go on ahead, and if I'm choking, to rip in here and give all those straws <laughs> out. and and give oh, me the bic straw pins. of life. There you go. Yep. yep. So I I know I'm prepared. Yep. All you need is a big, a bic <laughs> pin and uh and a dull steak knife and I'm safe.
1: <laughs> I used I used exacto knife blades. Indeed, yes. Fresh exacto yep. knife blades that I'd sterilize.
0: So every. that was a pretty big uh, task. The other big task, I think, the hardest thing of all is there will come a time, it's inevitable where they will not produce anymore. Eggs. Eggs. At which point you have to decide: Are they just pets that are really not particularly affectionate, and they're just kind of cute to look at, or are they food? And yeah, I I have slaughtered many chickens now. Um, I don't know how many, half oh. dozen, dozen, something like that.
1: Something like that. Yeah,
0: yeah. and that's never fun and never easy, and it really shouldn't be. So that's something to bear in mind as well. That's more of a long-term, down the road thing that you will eventually have to deal with. I mean, what is how long you're supposed to be able to get eggs out of a chicken?
1: Well, reliably for probably two years, mm-hmm. but they'll lay fairly well for three or four or five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the older, you can, you can have a chicken for a dozen years. I mean, they can live a long time if they don't get eaten by prey or, or what have you.
0: Right. So that I think is probably the biggest thing to consider above all else about, you know, whether you're going to make it super easy, but have a upfront investment um, or, uh, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. Is there anything else?
1: Probably good. We've probably given him more than he ever thought he would need to think about.
0: Good luck, Jack. All right. But Jack's not done. Jack is back.
1: How long did we talk about
0: that? I don't know. I a long time. And have- I think you have to take back the I tend to ramble on. <laughs> uh, hey,
1: people uh, ask me something I actually know something about.
0: There you go. Okay. All righty. Um, Jack's been listening to the podcast. It discusses a podcast that discusses how, how and why people change their mind. It's called With Friends Like These, Converts. It's apparently a rare thing with a type of belief that is associated with identity, like religion or politics. Uh, it's the type of change that makes you look at the world in a completely different light than before. Have I or Jen, is this question, ever had a change in that, of that type of belief? If so, how did it affect our sense of identity and how we view the world? For example... Um, he imagines the closest thing for me would be learning about UBI. Was that a you know fundamental sea change for Jen? I imagine it might be changing uh, your mind on having children. It might have had an effect because you we've mentioned in the past yeah. how you'd always had a certain identity you assumed. The identity of my mother is a powerful one, and how I've talked of uh, mom and how I've talked about it before seems suggested it was a type of a change for you. Of course, there's other examples. Love to hear about them, um, and. Just to be fair, uh, he's given one example of his own to help. uh, He's personally had three such sea changes in his life. Memorable because they completely reorganize how he views everything in the world. He went from Christian to atheist, social democrats to anarcho-capitalist, a type of libertarian, and anti-Trump to pro-Trump. The latter is an odd one relative to the other two, but I'm sure you can understand if you just imagine what it would be like if you suddenly became a Trump supporter tomorrow. Yes, that would certainly be a not insignificant life change. So, Honey Pie, what? Um, and, yeah, I mean, he certainly nailed one. You had all your life assumed yeah. you were going to have kids.
1: Yep. So, I think that one's been discussed before. But, yeah, I'll, I'll seed that one. Um, I, another one is is something that I've talked about before as well. And it was when I had read a, a fact that basically there were more books being published that year. And I think it was my maybe in, like, 1990 or something. Then you could possibly read, even if you read a page a second... 24 7 all year long you just there's no way you could read every book that is, was published that year and at that point that really gave me the freedom to start picking and choosing what I was allowing into my life because we only have so much time and I think that you know that really summed it up for me I didn't feel like I had to read newspapers anymore and I think probably I stopped following the news quite so much um, another sea change for me was reading Your Money or Your Life. And that was a really interesting book because it took the concept of working for money and kind of flipped it around in that it said, this actually, whatever this thing you've just bought, is that worth however much time you had to work to get it? And so like a fancy car, let's say 30, 40, Fifty, seventy, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 for a fancy car. How many hours, how many you know? days, weeks, months, years do you have to spend of your life in order to have that whatever it is, a fancy car or um, take yourself out for a $300 meal or um, I don't even know. Uh, try heroin. I, <laughs> not that you'd ever want to do that. Please don't. Please don't. No, I don't think there's any try. I think once you do it, you get addicted, and then you're... But anyway, um, so anyway, the, the idea of making choices based on how much of your life energy it costs versus, you know, strictly just on a dollar-to-dollar basis because I think it's very easy to only just spend money and not think about what money represents, which is your life. So I think those are three three biggies in my life. How about you?
0: Okay. Um, that's tougher for me because I do... I. T- I, mean, I I think Jen would agree that I certainly came into our relationship pretty much fully formed and you probably <laughs> haven't seen much change in me over the last several decades.
1: Yeah um, I think you've gotten more vocal but about what you're
0: you're more vocal in. about what I already thought. <clears throat> yeah I suppose so yeah um, And yeah I mean a lot of that is because because of my upbringing uh, you know growing up on a boat not having any social contact with other people and uh, you know being a, a huge bookworm. Uh, I mean, I I think I I formed a lot of my view of the world based on the fact that I was reading Catch-22 and you know Steinbeck and John Irving, a lot of John Irving um, and Ken Kesey, a lot of Ken Kesey. I mean, basically, these are the books my parents had when we lived on a boat and uh, they would only let me watch so much TV a day. So I read all these books multiple times and they really drilled certain worldviews into my young, fertile brain. And that's kind of what I've held on to ever since. Uh, so it's kind of a weird mishmash of stuff, and I mean, I think probably the last book I read that really had a big impact on me again was in high school. Uh, was uh, or no? Yeah, high school uh, was Watchmen actually. So it's kind of a weird mishmash of you know, you know, blinding optimism and you know, and crushing pessimism that uh, you know defines my worldview, and it hasn't really changed much. I think the optimism wins out. I do tend to think. I, I do tend to be a big fa- uh, fan of the, uh, the moral arc of history and how it bends towards justice. Uh, I've always kind of believed that very firmly. And nothing that has happened, even in the recent years, has uh, caused me to question that. Just sometimes it bends more slowly than other times. Um, one example I can think of, though, was very recent. Like, literally within the last month or two. While I was
1: away, you had an epiphany?
0: No, no. Oh. It was that thing that happened in April on Twitter. Where ah. I got pulled into a little online Twitter war or flame thing between trolls and a, and a victim of a troll. And I waded in with my very standard, look, if we talk about this, we can figure it out. Everybody here is a human being. And the people here who are doing terrible things, and make no mistake... I'm 100% clear they are doing terrible trolly things, doxing and, and all that stuff. They are still human beings, and hurt people hurt people. And um, if we actually try to get to them, it's going to be better than just shutting them out. And um, in doing that, it well, it, it basically created a firestorm. Uh, I am still blocked by so many people on Twitter now who will not forgive me because, uh, unbeknownst to me, I didn't—I was not aware of this term, sea-lining. But that it, regardless of what I was attempting to do, the reality of what I actually did is uh, the actual important thing. And so that was very, very eye-opening to me about how my privileged position of, look, I can just sit back and very academically try to dryly discuss all the uh, various elements that go into this socioeconomic uh, conundrum that has led to all this pain and hardship, and look, if we just talk through it, we'll get to the other side, and th- in the end, I think that does more to aid and abet the trolls. I, uh, I inadvertently was offering aid and comfort to them and causing distress to the people That I actually felt I sided with. And that was very, very difficult for me to take on. Uh, It was a really huge eye opener that, you know, because my inclination is just to talk to everybody about everything. And I have since come to believe that, you know, in the middle of a fire, trying to reason with the fire (laughs) isn't necessarily going to get anything done. It is perhaps better to put the fire out. Then try to find a way to ensure that the fire can self-actualize, and so that was a big one. Um, and like I said, it's it's still fairly fresh and new, and I'm still trying. It, it, it's caused the the deepest, most fundamental shift in my worldview about everything, and I'm having to question how I go, how I comport myself. But it's a big one. And um, but I think that's it. Otherwise, I mean, you you mentioned UBI. That was not that, I, that was a big deal for Jen. That was a huge deal for her. Yeah, because For I me, wish- I immediately... I, I, you know, I grew up on Star Trek. I mean, without before I ever knew of the... Con- I never either heard the term of post-scarcity or universal basic income. I believed that was our future because that's Starfleet. Um, but there was a podcast we listened to many years ago um, on the Cracked podcast, D- J- Jason Pargin talking about universal basic income. And for me... While I never thought about it, he articulated my feelings in such a way that I had to share it with Jen. And Jen was violently opposed to it the first time she listened to it. Yep. Very much so. Very much so. Oh, well, this is unacceptable. Not, unexce- not no. that it, violent. That's, well, I mean, not, obviously, not violent. You didn't vehemently, like... Vehemently, maybe. Vehemently, yes. I mean, she was strongly opposed.
1: Because I was raised, you know, with the Pro- Protestant work ethic. Yes. And, you know, that lazy people don't do anything and yeah. blah blah blah.
0: And that if you are getting UBI all it's going to do is incentivize you to be lazy and it would tear our, our you know our our entire economy apart and all that. And Of
1: course back then, I mean when I was a kid, we weren't at the point where we could do UBI. Oh. or the, and there were jobs still available. It's different now because the jobs are being automated away.
0: Sure. Although that had nothing to do with when we listened to this podcast whatever it was, five years ago.
1: Well, but I think we we saw on the horizon. Well,
0: yeah, I, I think more and more people are coming around to it now because it was always an inevitability, 100% inevitability, and it's only been sped up in the last, literally, in the last six months. <laughs> the need for it um, has just, you know, blossomed, and that's very exciting. But that was not a big sea change for me. That was just like, yeah, no-brainer. But it was a big deal for Jen. You went away, and I don't know what prompted you because I'm, I played it for you, and you were just... Just you—you you were, you were having none of it. It was, literally made you. And that's why I said yeah, you were violently me... opposed because you literally got angry at the thought of it.
1: Well, I had to stop and really think about what, what, what does this say about our society? Yes. And what does it say about me that I would be unwilling to let people just be?
0: You were instantly resentful of the people who would take advantage of it and play Minecraft all day. I mean, that was I mean, that was just your gut response. Yep. Um. And I'm honestly, I mean, I okay, I'll I'll drop it. I, I'm not, I don't have to pursue this with her. It clearly makes her unhappy to think about it. And at some somehow, not because of me, you circle back around on your own. Yeah. I didn't I, push the agenda I anymore. I gave
1: it some thought, you know, and it people have buttons that get pushed, and mm-hmm. I I'm not proud to say that I had those buttons. Um, but I've
0: thought so about it was it. It. it was just introspection. It wasn't that you then heard something else. I mean,
1: I don't remember, to yeah. be honest. Because honestly, I, just, I was so
0: surprised. And I was just like, oh, good. Yay, we agree on something. Or, I mean, <laughs> we agree on most things. I don't mean to say otherwise, but yay. <laughs> oh, something no. that I was afraid we very much disagreed on. <laughs> no, okay, it turns out we do agree on it. Yay.
1: Yeah, yeah I agree. So I think I just needed some time. That is that is classic me, though. If you <laughs> if you hatch some idea or project or whatever on me, my first thing is, nope. Yeah. Because I need time to process it and think about it and figure out how it's going to fit and stuff. And then I'm I'm usually very amenable to whatever it is. But I just need time to think through it. All
0: right. Good question, Jack. Yeah. All right. Uh Tim says In episode 61, somebody asked about the Pillars of the Earth. And uh, Tim wants to mention, there is a Pillars of the Earth game on Steam that's pretty highly rated. I don't know anything about the books, so I have uh, no idea how much this sticks to the characters. But I thought Jen might be interested in seeing it. Although, I know she doesn't really play video games these days. So, here's the question. What do you think about that? If if, if Tim were to come up to you at the cafeteria and say, Hey, Jen, you want to check out this Pillars of the Earth video game?
1: Yes. No.
0: And that's all you got to say about that? Yes. Why is that? I just... Because you don't care about video games, because you don't care about Pillars of the Earth, because what?
1: I just... I've only got so much time, and I've got things I want to do in this life. So, right now, playing video games is not a priority for me.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: So, that's that.
0: All righty. Let's see. Lance says he knows I've talked about my history with comic books, but Lance wanted to get my take on some specific titles. See if I've read them, and if so, what I think. Jan, of course, hasn't read any of them, so she is going to tune out now. She's back to the Facebook, she goes.
1: No, no, I'm looking at quotes.
0: Oh, she got she's getting ready for her quote. Uh, her quotes of wisdom. All righty. So uh, Lance will keep it short. There's is something I don't mind answering. He'll send more along in the future. Uh, these are probably two of my all-time favorites, so I'm really curious if I've read Savage Dragon by Eric Larson. Probably know as one of the original Image books. I, and um, the next one would be Criminal by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. It was originally the icon imprint at Marvel, now being published by Image. I haven't read this. If you haven't read it, it's a series of interconnected hard-boiled crime stories. Uh, somewhere around 8 to 10 series, and the OGN called My Heroes Have Always Been Junkies. Uh, I also wanted to get my take on another hobby, pro wrestling. Have I ever watched wrestling? Uh, have I ever come across independent wrestling or something like New Japan Pro Wrestling? Seattle is one of the best independent wrestling companies. Defy Wrestling. Okay. I'm sorry to say I've not read either of them. I am familiar with Savage Dragon. Um, I mean, most of my hardcore comic days were in the mid-80s when I was still in high school. And I went over to Golden Age Collectibles in Seattle once a week on the weekend uh, all by myself as a young teen and got to get my uh, pool box and all that. And I was aware of Savage Dragon. I just... I had to be really picky because I didn't have much money, and so I missed it. Ed Brubaker, my only experience with him is I did read his Captain America, you know Bucky, Bucky Cap run, and I thought that was absolutely amazing, and I was so bummed when it ended because it made Captain America so much more engaging. Uh, so I was very impressed by him there, but I think that's the only stuff of his I've actually read. So no, I'm I'm not familiar. Although I'll be honest. Hard-boiled crime detective stories. Hey, there's another epiphany I made not too long ago. Yeah, yep. I think I'm done with the hard-boiled um, crime uh, detective or hard-boiled gangster. Not that I, I not not that I think oh it's a problem they're being glorified. I, I do think there's something you can get out, uh, but it's just I don't know. There was there was a couple of years there there was a string of movies. There's oh you got to watch this. I mean and heck it was most recently um, the Scorsese film uh, the or Gotti was it Gotti whatever it was called. I'm like eh yeah okay. I've heard enough stories about criminals. I don't think I need to hear anymore. So, I, I you know, all, all that said, I'm surprised how much I really am enjoying Perry Mason. Uh, Perry Mason is blowing me away, as did Defending Jacob, two TV shows. There are also, you know, uh, uh, you know, hard-boiled crime confessional type stuff, which normally I don't care for. So, no, I, I can't really say I've done either of those. I'm sorry, Lance. Uh, I, if you, if you dove, dive into my pool, you might find it's fairly shallow when it boils right down to it. I was mostly a Marvel kid. I read a lot of image stuff. I loved Concrete. I remember that specifically. And um, gosh, and there, there, I mean, there must have been some more non-Marvel stuff, but other than Walking Dead and Saga. Oh, and, um, you know, uh, Why the Last Man? That was certainly another one that's hugely impactful. So basically anything Peter Vaughn, I suppose. Uh, as for pro wrestling, no. I mean, when I was, I don't know, 10 or 12, you know, at its in its heyday, the WrestleMania days of the 80s, I was familiar with it and I watched it, but I wasn't ever into it. It was just, oh, that's kind of interesting. It's some flashy, loud noise and violence on TV. Okay, I'll watch this. It's kind of like superheroes, which I really do like, except not really. And you know, and I remember, I do remember very specifically finding out that it was fake because I 100% believed it was all real. And of course. That's not fair because it is very, very real, um, you know, and, and the uh, what they put themselves through for that entertainment is heartbreaking, um, and you know, and, and, and incredible what they go through. But I don't know, maybe after that, I just kind of tuned out. But I never really tuned in in the first place. So I, I mean, like I said, another very shallow pool for me. Sorry to say, and I'm sure Jen has nothing to say about either of those. Have you, have you ever cared about any comic book in your life?
1: Hmm. Gosh. I know I had some as a kid, but I don't even remember what they are now. Like I, Wonder Woman, maybe. Just mm-hmm. superheroes? Superman? But
0: that's because of the TV show.
1: I, I, right. I, I, I don't mean, know. I did, no, I don't care.
0: Yep. Never have. All right. Uh, Corey says, this is Iris. She's a Palmski, half Pomeranian, half Siberian Husky.
1: Oh, my God. All right. What? How did that happen? Half Pomeranian? Those are tiny. Half Siberian Huskies? Not so tiny.
0: Yep. Wow. life finds a way
1: how how big is i can't remember, I mean,
0: remember nobody on the podcast can see this picture okay. so well, you can enjoy that
1: i just want to know how big she is
0: all right Corey, you have to write back in, uh, and uh and and throw today's newspaper for scale or something because it's a close zoom in yeah picture Cute. Cute. um oh okay you're asking you shall receive here's another picture from Corey when she's awake Wow. Um, Yep, nice little medium-sized dog. Cute, cute. Sorry, folks. Uh, That was the second picture for Jen. Corey, in the future, please include a question. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, those were awesome. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, Eric wants to submit this question. Really anxious to hear the response. Recent events trouble him so deeply, Eric. He values the input of thoughtful, respectful people on all sides, so feel free to save it for the show or respond personally or both. Obviously, I didn't do that, so here we go. Honey Pie. Yes. Apparently, I have expressed passionate opinions about a number of political, environmental, and humanitarian topics on the podcast, so Eric knows those issues are very important to me. It also seems that I can respect others who have differing opinions, understanding that they may have just as noble and well-attentioned view while still interpreting evidence differently and believing that alternate methodologies would serve humanity best. In regards to the nation's biggest issue right now—I don't know which one he means— um, Is it possible for someone to sincerely repudiate racism... Okay, Black Lives Matter. Um, You could have meant COVID. Or you could have meant global warming, which is also the nation's biggest issue. Anyway, is it possible for someone to severely repudiate racism and racial injustice while not blanking endorsing the, the views of Black Lives Matter as a movement? Is it possible that one might proactively seek racial equality but differ on the question of the extent of systemic racism or feel that Black Lives Matter's approach is not a good solution? Can one stand for the rights of people of color but disagree with the tenets of the Black Lives Matter movement such that, such as engendered distrust of the legal system, defunding police, and dissolving nuclear families? Uh, must one recite Black Lives Matter to be truly anti-racist? First of all, to answer your question, um, I do think it is, kind of, it is. we are in a... A, uh, I'm trying to think of a non way you know the, crap or get off the pot moment. (laughs) Um, I didn't want to say that because this is for kids, or kid friendly. In that you know what, a couple of years ago I might have been no, dude, you do you. But I do think all lives matter is a genuinely harmful stance to take because it belittles and marginalizes the already. Um, marginalized and brutalized um, neighbors that uh, suffer through this every single day. Anything short of a full-throated Black Lives Matters, um, I I have a hard time accepting these days. And your concerns, I think, are largely straw men. Defund the police does not mean—and Even the simplest, quickest Google search will repeatedly show over and over and over again that is not the equivalent of abolishing the police. That is all about ensuring that um, we don't send people with guns out to resolve getting cats out of trees, um, you know, uh, helping... Homeless people find shelter for the night or dealing with stuff that would be better served by having social workers on site. The fact that the police in our society have become the de facto social worker for any ill that sar- serves any problem, and yet they are a hammer. They are trained for one thing, which is... um you know, these days, violent suppression tactics to protect lives, their own and everybody else's, and that is very, very rarely an appropriate response to traffic tickets or anything else. So, defund the police means largely demilitarize the police. The the, the police, if you look at the budgets for policing in America, it I forget. I mean, it's ridiculous. It outweighs education and healthcare combined. It's all, it's absolutely, that's a, a spurious number, but it's those kinds of absolutely mind bogglingly insane numbers that have just been left to fester since the 80s and 90s and the tough get war, you know, war on crime um, dogma yeah. um, that has just gotten worse and worse and worse. Defund the police, if you just do us even the simplest, what does defund the police mean? Search, Eric. You will find. I suspect you um, find more that you agree with than disagree. As for dissolving nuclear families, that is probably the most ridiculous straw man leveled at Black Lives Matter at all. And it is literally born of the, of people's, or not people, I, I would say bad faith actors working to try to subvert them and tricking people who are good-natured into believing a lie. Because the quotes that everybody likes to throw around, um, they never actually give the full quote. Uh, the I, I, I'm even going to find it now. No, I'm not. Um, here's the deal. Go back to... I mean, here's the first of all. If you're trying to decide whether you believe uh, in Black Lives Matter as a cause, forget about the Marxism ridiculousness. That's absolutely silly. It's so completely out of touch with reality. It's not even worth bringing up. It's it's just the most blatant, transparent. Look, let's see a way that we can try to stop forward progress any way we can by you know throwing around Marxism. Um, but go to Black Lives Matter. Go to their What Are We About? Read their entire, I think it's like a 13-point platform or something like that. And um, I believe that you will find there is nothing in there you disagree with. And the one particular line that says, um, words to the effect of... We, uh, you know, the, you know uh, the, the way it is interpreted, the line about how we want to, as you said, dissolve the traditional nuclear family, that is literally not reading the entire sentence. Because the sentence ends with the word requirement. What Black Lives Matter is against is the societal expectation that if you are not a mom and a dad and little Timmy and little Sally and the dog and the cat... If you veer from that, that you are failing, that there is no other viable approach. There is a de facto requirement in our society that a successful family unit must be a mother, a father, and children. And Black Lives Matter disagrees with that. Um, Same-sex couples should be the basis of strong family units. And uh, even more importantly, the idea that is an old African proverb of it takes a village to raise a child. That's what that is talking about. To truly ensure that our future generation of children have the best chance for success comes about when everybody cares about the child. Not just the mom and dad in their tight little nuclear family uh, shunt away from the rest of the world. Oh, that's all you need is mom and dad. That is a de facto requirement in our society and Black Lives Matter repudiates that. That there are other successful means. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with a nuclear family. At no point does Black Lives Matter ever make that statement that there is anything wrong with that. What they say is there are other ways to go about it. And if you believe that they are for the dissolving, as you say, then you have literally not read the entire sentence. You've missed one key word. They are against the requirement, the presupposition. So, that if that is why you are against Black Lives Matter, because you think they are anti-family, you're wrong. If you think because they're a Marxist, that is incorrect. If you think it is because they want to abolish the police, all of these are incorrect. And really the best best I could do for you, Eric, is say, go to their site, look at the what are we about, read the whole thing in its entirety. And you know what? Contact me. If you have any particular issues with any of them, I'd be more than happy. But if, if you read that, in good faith, and not just presupposed, predisposed to dismiss anything you can out of hand because I'm just not comfortable with them and their tactics. Although, God, don't even get me started on their tactics. Um, I wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt in every video I do now. When I, wearing that shirt, said Jaws of the Lion is the best implementation of Gloomhaven, does that mean Black Lives Matter, as an organization, has to stand by that assertion because I was wearing a BLM t-shirt? No, of course not. And yes, anybody can buy a Black Lives Matter t-shirt and go out and say, on behalf of Black Lives Matter, I'm going to smash this window. Black Lives Matter, at no point anywhere in history absolves people of that, or encourages anybody to do that. Um, and it's very, very easy to find angry people and say, oh, look, because they're wearing that shirt, the whole thing's got to go. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Eric, and I'm sorry, man, I hear I swore I, I wasn't going to do politics anymore. But <laughs> um, it snuck up on me. It snuck up on me. That's my feeling. And if you, n- knowing what you know, or no, knowing you know, taking on board what I have just said, that the Marxism is a lie, that the dis- that the dissolution of the police and nuclear family is a lie, that they are actively encouraging violence in the streets, which is a lie. If you now understand that all of these things are a lie, which they are, um, you know, propagated by the right-wing media to shut them down and, um, you know, basically keep white privilege where it is. Mm. It's all driven by fear. Um, if, you, if, if you can accept that, then read their tenets. And I think you will find that they are a worthwhile organization to support. And at that point, if you are not prepared to say Black Lives Matter, because that's just a statement of fact. Um, you know, a lot of people, because I wear it, they always say in the videos, Oh, Rado, all lives matter. Don't you understand? All lives matter. My go-to response to that is, Right, but not equally. And that's the problem. When somebody says Black Lives Matter, the entire sentence is um, Black Lives Matter, but our society isn't working that way, and it's time for a change. It's just that is not as catchy. That doesn't make (laughs) a nice little t-shirt. So um, I hope, Eric, and anybody else listening who believes these literal lies, that this propaganda, um, if you can take another look, go in there, search their entire website for any hint of the um, restoration of the means of production to the worker, i.e. Marxism. You won't find it because it's not there. Because it's a straw man. It's a distraction. It's just there to, you know, they're throwing out, you know, Rush Limbaugh wants to trick you and lie to you. So that would be my answer to your response. Um, Can you be truly anti-racist, while still hedging on the Black Lives Matter thing? No, I don't think so. At this point, if you're not ready to full-throatedly lend your support to justice and equality for all, then because of a couple of lies that you have been told, I hope you can rethink that. Anyway, so, sorry folks, there was the Black Lives Matter section. All righty, moving right along. Let's get some chickens. All righty. (laughs) Um, am I glad that I moved back to the U.S. before the pandemic started? Any thoughts on what we would do if we were still living in Europe? Or specifically Malta, I guess. Malta has handled um, uh, COVID remarkably well. Yep. Uh, they are not always the most with-it-together um, government, but you know, one of the benefits of being such an incredibly tiny island in the middle of nowhere with such an amazingly small population was, and not being run by an idiot, sorry Ooh. Jack, um, <laughs> who actively incites people to um, to go against just standard medical practice? Malta got on top of it very early on, and as I understand it, is one of the big success stories. And so, yeah, I think uh, I I I I I I'm very proud of them, and I'm very happy about them because my other two countries of choice, <laughs> the UK and the US, not so much. They, very they, much not so much. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be about COVID. I'm embarrassed by the country I live in. And if I were living in England, I'd be embarrassed by the leadership and country I'd be living in. And I would be proud if I were still in Malta. Um,
1: That's an interesting way to phrase it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's as simple as that. Now, that said, it doesn't matter where we live. It wouldn't affect us at all. Because if COVID had never happened, literally nothing about Jens and my life would have changed over the last three months. Other than we wouldn't be wearing masks when we go out. And we wouldn't have uh, hand sanitizer in the car. That's about the extent of... We would
1: be doing more traveling. We would have gone down to see my parents and...
0: Yes, that's true. But not that much more. A little bit more. Because you did. You have gone down and seen your mom. And um, we missed out on one trip for your folks. So, a a little bit. But I'm not even going to consider that... um,
1: I'm just saying, that is the one thing that that would have
0: changed. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean... Because don't forget, one of the reasons we came back to America... Well, obviously, the main reason was my mom... But equally was Jen's mom and Jen's dad. Um, in February or January, Jen had booked tickets. We were going to go fly to Arizona and spend a week or two. We we, we we did one long weekend with them, and that was so great. Hey, let's do another one, and we were going to go in late March. And by early March, we realized, yeah, we're going to have to cancel this, <laughs> yeah. and it was such a bummer. Um, and uh, but yeah, but that's so incon- so inconceivably small yeah, compared mean, to all the suffering that's happening. On so many levels. Yes, agreed. Uh, yeah. Um, so, I guess in that regard, to answer your original question, are we glad we moved back? Yes, we are. Um, because it, but it's not because of COVID specifically. It's because we've been able to spend more time with with our families. Yes. Even if we are distant. Okay. Um, let's see here. Tim is back. Oh, where? and he says, there's a Pillars of the Earth board game. Uh, Tim, you'll find I've already done a run-through for it. (laughs) Okay, Rebecca says that she lives in New Zealand. Another success story. I'm sure Rebecca is very uh, very proud of her country. And I feel like you and Jen would love it here. Have you ever considered moving? And if so, what is stopping you?
1: We would love to live in New Zealand.
0: New Zealand has been high on our bucket list, not for just a visit, but an actual... Nope, we live here. Yep. Uh, for a long, long time, um, that was—that's always been the plan, and it had always been the plan for the longest time that I would use my position in the video game industry to get a job down there, get the work permit, and all of that. Yep. And unfortunately, as you may or may not know, Rebecca, you, the video game industry in uh, New Zealand has not really taken off as well as it might have. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, for a while, it was really looking like like Weta was going—you know—which is the special effects company that was behind Lord of the Rings, was created for Lord of the Rings, basically, that they, uh, you know, this was like over a decade ago, that they were, there was a lot of talk how they were going to start up a a video game, depart, uh, you know, wing of their operations. And you better believe I was like, I will move heaven and earth. I don't care what it takes. I don't care what game they're doing. I will be the creative director of whatever that project is. But it never happened. And, um, and yeah, so... Uh, would, would you be willing to sponsor us for a work permit? Uh, that's <laughs> think, what's stopping us.
1: I think you have... There's all sorts of requirements. Um, a neighbor of mine, well, ours, yes, um, in England, moved to New Zealand. And his all right. His wife actually had... Was it, I
0: thought it was Australia. It was New Zealand? You're, you're talking about survivalist guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, go on. Royston. Royston, yes.
1: Um, so anyway, his wife had the criteria that that made them eligible to move to New Zealand. She had whatever the skills were that they were looking for. He is a survivalist guy, so um, essentially... Great skills, but nothing employable. They
0: have, they have plenty of that in New Zealand already, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, who can survive. Anyway. Exactly.
1: So, um, no, it took them a long time, and they had to jump through so many hoops. Yeah. And, you know, she had to have a job sponsor, and they had to yep. have, you know, X amount of money and all sorts of stuff. So, basically, I don't think it's possible for us to to move there to live
0: Ex- well, Yeah. without well, a job sponsor. I believe they do have some kind of Maltese equivalent. Well, hey, if you're rich... You can yeah. buy your way in. I like think they have something like that. Something? I yeah, if, if you want to drop, you know, 10 million into our economy, sure, we'll give you a passport. I think they do. I could have sworn I read that at some no, point. No, no, I... uh, because, Re- Rebecca, we are desperate to be Kiwis. That, uh, there is literally no fonder wish on both of I think we both agree that if we could, we would happily grow old and die in New Zealand. Yes. Um,
1: okay. What and so you parents? have prompted
0: Jen to go back to uh, New Zealand immigration uh, how-to sites now. Okay, so
1: the skilled migrant category is a point system based on factors such as age work experience yeah. qualification and offer of skilled employment
0: yeah see that's the thing the, oh, I could how? I could definitely you get must in be under those
1: age 55 or under yes, so we uh, better get on yeah, this. I know
0: that I could definitely do that if there was a startup in New Zealand trying to make video games I am certain I could get the, no. the whatever the visa is because I am literally probably one of the top 200 video game designers in the world You know, just if you want to base it solely off of the success of my games, Um, and so I would imagine I could turn that in. And now Jen's really going down some rabbit hole or other. Oh, and she found it. Is it ten million?
1: It's it's only a hundred thousand New Zealand.
0: Oh, so if we if we have a hundred thousand New Zealand dollars lying around, we can buy our way in. Apparently, that is not what I thought at all. I mean, Malta's half a million
1: is currently worth one point three seven. Well. So it's even less for us. It's almost a 40% uh, okay, discount. bye Got to go. Got to pack. bye
0: uh, I haven't done a Kickstarter for a while. It might be time for a <laughs> oh new one. Oh, my gosh.
1: Wow. <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, so let's see. That's so, surprising. Oh, so I knew they had one. But... It says to apply, you'll need at least New Zealand 100000 to invest, yes. as well as a detailed business plan.
0: Right. Okay. So you have to come in as a business person and start. You, you have to be. I mean, that's the thing. They want they'll have to bring somebody in if they're if you're if you're actively in good faith contributing to the New Zealand economy, and you can prove that's what you're going to do.
1: Yeah, we're not just coming there yeah. to
0: Malta. Has a much more look. No, just just give us five. Just give us half a million. And we'll give you the, the, you know, wherever you are anywhere in the world, a lot of Russians do it. A lot of Russians have Maltese passports because yeah. uh, they just buy their way in. Whereas New Zealand, I'm sure, is probably much more rigorous about the... Uh, oh, yeah. You no, know, you have to have your business plan. You have to show how this is going to, you know, help New Zealand grow as an economy and stuff like that. So honestly, that sounds like a lot of work. But <laughs> Rebecca, if you know anybody who's uh, looking to make... If you know anybody at WETA and they ever reinvigorate uh, those plans of, uh, you know, I will go back to making video games. I'd rather do board games if you uh, know Shem Phillips and he wants to sponsor me for a visa as I mean, I, I imagine I, I could make a pretty strong argument that I've got unique skills in that as well. Wow. That's definitely possible. Anyway, sorry. That's neither here nor there, but to answer your question, yes, please. And what is stopping us?
1: Um, well, your
0: country is stopping us.
1: Is healthcare free in New Zealand? If you're eligible, you can get free or subsidized health maternity and disability services in New Zealand. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. So it sounds like it's very similar to national health. Yep. In England.
0: Yep. Yet another reason. Yep. Okay. Moving right along. Although I think Jen's going to be stuck where she is yeah, for a while.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm on the Google with New Zealand.
0: All righty. First of all, honey pie, there's a lot of cute, adorable oh! pictures. I will look
1: at your computer.
0: Of, uh... Oh. This is yo-yo.
1: It's a Yorkie in a feathery, fuzzy bed. Yep. Adorable.
0: Yep. That's uh, from Melanie. And Melanie has a question. See? Dogs plus questions. <laughs> What Harry Potter house are each of us? Um, whenever Melanie takes the quizzes, she ends up with Ravenclaw. And now of course she wrote this,
1: this is several weeks ago. I, I don't she... know if
0: Melanie would write that now, but I'm sure you don't have any idea I what's going no, on oh, with, JK with JK Rowling. JK Rowling yep. being
1: unsupportive of
0: uh, yeah. of, of uh, Yep.
1: I don't think that I think people anyway. are being anyway, go ahead.
0: Anyway. Uh, it's a very cute. Uh, Yo-Yo is amazing. That is the cutest dog we've seen yet. Oh. But I'll say that to every person's dogs. So okay. sorry, uh, Honey if I Which house would you be?
1: I'd be Hufflepuff. Oh, sorry. You'd be. I, I think you'd be Hufflepuff, and I'd be Ravenclaw.
0: Really? Yeah. Why is that? Which one? Either. Well, Why can't I be Ravenclaw?
1: Because I think you care most about being a good, kind person.
0: All right. Damn it. I'm Hufflepuff.
1: Is is that not I have
0: to be the roly-poly, adorable level ones. Okay. (laughs) Can't be the cool one. Yeah, I mean, what what, what are the defining characteristics of Ravenclaw? Why are you Ravenclaw instead of Slytherin? Uh,
1: well... Because
0: Slytherin is just all about, you know, putting aside the evil connotations, the core of Slytherin is just supposed to be about um, self-determination and ambition. Yeah. And those are certainly you. So why aren't you Slytherin? Because I don't want to be. Oh, because when the when the, the when the hat was about to put me there, I said, Please, anything but that.
1: <laughs> that would it would take my wishes into account.
0: So why Ravenclaw? You know more about it than I do.
1: Oh well I've taken one of those online oh um, and it
0: comes out Ravenclaw? Yeah. Alright, well there you go. Yep. No Gryffindors here.
1: That would be my sister.
0: <laughs> really.
1: Well, she's very adventurous.
0: Okay. Uh we jumped out of planes.
1: Yes, but we don't free climb or
0: Mountain climber, anything like that. Mm. We hang-load. Hang-lid. <laughs> hang Did we glue? We glue on... All righty. Um, Hunter was listening to my Twitch question and answer with Board Game Geek, with uh, Scott Alden, and was listening to me talk about my persona, the the Rado persona, which is really based on a play I was in in high school, and thought that was an interesting conversation. Uh... Hunter has wondered if I ever thought about the thought process of approaching my personality like I could be an ambi- ambivert. Never heard of that term. Ambivert. Ambivert.
1: It's like ambidextrous. Could, could, you, could
0: you search ambivert? Um, he might have typoed it or might have been a followed autocorrect. Um, Or that the goofy, funny, outgoing you is just as much a part of you as what you actually are as the quiet hoodie-wearing incognito fella. An ambivert is a person whose personality has a balance of extrovert and introvert features. Um, All right. I ask this because I've always been the most outgoing person just about any any of my friends have known. Some of the people that don't know me as deeply get surprised when they find out I can also be quiet, reflective, relaxed, and introspective. Uh, whether you are both and you're just deep and interesting person or just deep and searching, don't, uh, just don't let uh, go to your head when you figure that out. I would think to, um, qualify for folks who don't know, it was actually really fun. I did a Q and a, I think if you do a search for, what would you have to search for? Rotto, board game geek, um, virtual convention, because I, I did a Q and A during their virtual convention a couple of weeks ago, you'll find it. And uh, Scott Alden basically uh, quizzed me about a lot of really interesting questions for two hours, uh, and I really went deep into my psyche and persona. So, and that's obviously what Hunter is referring to. And I talked about—I'm sure I've talked about it on the podcast many times how the Rado persona is, is, a, is a thing that I do, that I was trained to do because of a play I was in. It's literally the character of the Vagabond from a play called The Vagabond that I was in in high school. And you know, And Hunter wonders if it really is me. Now, I mean, I think to a certain extent, I mean, I do something for so long, is it impossible to stay truly separate from it? No, probably not. I'm sure it's, to a certain extent, has become me. But in classifying me as an extrovert or an introvert or an ambivert, I think really more than anything else, it has to come back to not what am I capable of, not how do I even comport myself, but w- in what way do I want to be? Just because I can be a way doesn't mean I want to be. And it sounds like even though you can be introverted and, and reflective and quiet, it's not your natural state of being. I mean, given your druthers, as a general rule, I assume you will find yourself drawn to the outgoing life of the party, you know, get to know everybody, and, and, you know, that kind of thing. Very much what Tom Vassell is. Tom Vassell is an undeniable text case extrovert. Um, You know, I think you kind of have to be if you want to become a preacher, when it boils right down to it. (laughs) If you want to become a successful one, anyway. Let alone a uh, video personality. Um, So, I don't know. I guess I could be. And and there's no doubt that the Rado persona has rubbed off on me over the years. But I do still think, in my heart of hearts... There is a way I would opt to be wherever possible, and that probably still keeps me on one side of the fence a bit more thoroughly. And Jen is still digging into currency conversion and stuff. Yeah. She has not walked away from this.
1: New Zealand dollars are about 50 cents or 50 is it, are they 50, are, are, are they at a
0: historical low?
1: I don't know, but I'm just saying it's only 50,000 pounds.
0: So, we have to we need 50,000 pounds now to become New Zealand citizens well, that's and just, a business plan. That's is your business plan, plan um I'm going to make glass.
1: <laughs> yes. I <I'll laughs> make pretty glass things. I will employ myself.
0: (laughs) And my glass will be for sale in stores. (laughs) Citizenship, please. (laughs)
1: Yes. Hand it over.
0: (laughs) I don't know if that's what they're looking for.
1: No, probably not.
0: Probably not. You keep digging, honey pie.
1: Okay, well, I was just checking because, you know, that'd be kind of fun. But I don't see that it could possibly happen.
0: All right, Brett uh, (laughs) says his wife has enjoyed our discussion last uh, episode about grocery and meal planning. They also oh. enjoy eggs quite a bit, but not enough to own chickens yet. And I don't know if we talked you out of it uh, a half an hour ago. We'll see.
1: A half hour? It was uh, like an hour. Was
0: and... it? I don't know.
1: I think so, because my thing is at six and now yep, we've got yep, 50 yep. minutes.
0: I am wondering, what are some of your favorite ways to eat eggs? Do you use them um, for all meals? Any favorite recipes? Brett, a nice poached egg that is just a bit runny is perfect. Deviled eggs are also top-notch. Anyway, thanks for all you do, honey pie.
1: I love quiche, Mm -hmm. and quiche is awesome. That would
0: be crustless quiche.
1: Yep, without wheat. Um, But my mother-in-law bought me a ninja foodie Mm -hmm. a couple years ago for Christmas, and I cook in that thing almost all the time now. And it's wonderful because you can just crack, you know six or a dozen eggs or something into this thing, mix in your veg, mix in your flavorings or beef or cheese or whatever you're going to put in there, mix it all up, push the bake thing and go away. And it cooks it and everything. It's awesome. And basically it's a cheese souffle, but not as fancy as that. Is. <laughs> but it, or a quiche, I call them quiches, but we don't put any, um, crust in there. It's just baked eggs. Basically. I love that. And it's awesome. It's travelable. It's freezeable. It's, just delicious as well. So that's probably my favorite way to do eggs. I've been doing fried eggs in the foodie recently. in The grease left over from cooking the bacon. That's been good. Um, love deviled eggs, but rarely make them because they are a bit of a hassle. But I love them.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, you used to... Used to do They're that. really good, yeah.
1: Yeah, I
0: know. But, I mean, you don't go out of your way to put eggs in every meal. We pretty much just have eggs for breakfast. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's not like... You find way you you don't do carbonara. Isn't that isn't that mm. pasta with eggs or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So it's pretty much just a breakfast food for us. And we each eat what? Three eggs a day? So that's six Usually two eggs a day. So we do not keep up with the uh, chicken output.
1: You it's it's a good thing to be my neighbor.
0: Yep. Yeah. You you live near us, you're gonna free eggs if you're on Jen's good side. <laughs> All righty. Uh Peter oh, wait,
1: did he he had egg he had more egg questions, didn't he?
0: No, it was just uh
1: How do we like eggs? Do we eat a lot of eggs? Yeah. What are
0: your favorite recipes? Uh, Do you use them for every meal? What are your favorite ways to eat eggs?
1: Okay.
0: All righty. Peter says, I thought a more lighthearted personal question would be a welcome relief for you and Jen. (laughs) What about the audience, Peter? Um, This has been a particularly heavy... uh, There was a lot of politics in the game stuff. I'm Sorry about that, folks. Um, I need to do better. Anyway, my partner and I recently welcomed a new puppy into our home. (gasps) Uh, where's uh, the picture of it oh oh let's see picture all right first things first picture the picture
1: oh it's a springer it's a spaniel of some sort is it springer spaniel
0: he hasn't said yet but that's a puppy with very big paws (laughs) and very lovely eyes Mm. and all sorts of spots all Uh, the spots
1: look at all the the paws yep so cute all right
0: back to the question okay um as long-term dog owners yourself it would be great to pick your brains for any invaluable advice you have she is our first dog, let alone puppy, uh, mm-hmm. that they've had. Or um, I think we're doing okay. Our two Siamese cats are getting used to her, however. Any tips involving puppies to cats? No. And the dog's name is Nana.
1: Nana! Okay, no, we don't have cats. I don't, we've never owned a cat, have we?
0: You and I have it. I grew That's up with I'm cats. Saying. No, I'm just but, saying. Yeah.
1: My mom always had cats too, but you and I have never had a cat. Mm-hmm. That's a little weird to say, isn't it? Gosh, I hadn't really thought about that before. Anyway, uh, so nothing about that. And puppy. Oh, take him out frequently. <laughs> Remember when the olden days and you had to remind yourself to save your work all the time on the computer before the autosave feature was there? That's kind of how I think about it. Take the puppy out at every opportunity. Every 10 minutes. Who knows? Mm-hmm. So... uh. It's been a long time since we had puppies. We had Dobby as a puppy, and that was back in 96, I think. Yep. Yep. We've had, we've just adopted adult dogs since then. But, um, yeah. So can you think of anything?
0: No, but I would imagine you, what were your advice for Dobby? How's your puppy? You, you've had two puppies. You had Scuttle and you had Dobby. They yeah. were both, by far, our two best behaved and well-adjusted dogs. Because all these adult dogs we get are little monsters out of control at all times.
1: Well. I would quite say that, but <laughs> yes, it's true. I, I, I know. And the next, pu- the next dogs, we're getting his puppies. Mm-hmm. We're going to get a couple of sisters, I think. All right. Um, from the pound or whatever, but so anyway, far
0: you've offered no newbie advice or is your newbie advice? Just go watch Caesar.
1: Uh, yeah, that's probably good because actually what Caesar does is he doesn't train. This the is dogs. Caesar Milan. He trains humans
0: mm-hmm.
1: to think mainly, I think.
0: Well, to, to see the world from their dog's perspective. To understand how their dog is thinking and how their dog interprets what you say and do.
1: Well, and also, that people don't realize that dogs are very often just marrying the human that mm. they belong to. So, if you're a mess and your dog's a mess, it's probably because you're a mess. I mean, fearful or um, aggressive or who knows. Um, but I've definitely seen that in people and their dogs. And I know when I'm anxious, the dogs get anxious. So... They are just little energy conductors, and they can tell what you're thinking, and they will react accordingly.
0: Okay. So, walk often and drink the Caesar Malone Kool-Aid. That would be your advice for a new puppy owner?
1: I didn't say walk often. I said take the dog out so he can go to the bathroom.
0: Oh, all right. Uh,
1: that's what I was saying. But I suppose, you know, walking often is good, too, because if they're tired, they're good. <laughs> a good dog yeah, is no a dog. no
0: training advice? Because you spend a lot of time training Dobby.
1: Yeah, but that was back. That was so long ago. That was like in 92.
0: Back when you had the patience to do it.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that was that was either 91 or 92. So that means Dobby must... Was Dobby's 95, 96?
0: Dobby was... We got her in Texas. Yeah. We moved into Texas oh. at um, like 2000.
1: 2002, I think. So no, Dobby was about 2002. So I have... It was long ago. I don't know. Yeah, I think... I don't know. I can't think of anything else. Sorry. All right. Okay.
0: Read Cesar Milan books. Watch his shows. Jen is 100% an Arden fan and believer in everything he says. Okay. And, dee, 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 zipping right along. It's Rachel, who says they've adopted a puppy no. named Sprecker. Sprecker. Because he's the color of root beer. A lab mix, local rescue, sweet, happy, smart bright light during dark times. Yeah. Unfortunately, things aren't going as well with our older dog. Sonic is five, is unique in that he's never been an affectionate dog, but is well-socialized, loved human visitors, and prior to COVID, went uh, to doggy daycare several times a week. We've had Sprecker for six weeks, and Sonic has zero interest in playing or interacting. Sonic is not aggressive towards him, but sometimes makes a mean-looking face when Sprecker doesn't let up. Things could escalate if they're not watched. Having two dogs is new territory for us. Do you have any advice? I've been spending time with Sonic alone, taking him for drives or walks, and that makes him happy. But I should be keeping them together at all times. To- but should I be keeping them together at all times, or is that just forcing it? Have all of your dogs gotten along? Any One variable is Sonic is working through some health issues right now. Oh. We've been working um, with a vet to find a diagnosis for the last few months, months, so, I'm sure if he's not feeling well, his tolerance level will be lower. Any advice would be greatly appreciated, says Rachel. And here is the picture of Sonic and Schrecker. Oh, they look pretty close in the picture. Yeah. But I guess that's posed.
1: Or maybe there's treats right there.
0: Yep, yeah. I, I'm putting well, up so- with you for the treat, <laughs> says Sonic.
1: Yes. Um, well, we had we got Dobby as a puppy when Scuttle was, I'm going to say six or eight. And it must have been eight because Scuttle had already been diagnosed with Cushing's disease. Remember Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Um, So she was, she had some health issues as well. Um, But Scuttle had always been an only dog. And those are the two that we've had from puppyhood, Scuttle and and Dobby. So, um, so she was not best pleased when we brought Dob home. We have pictures of her going, can you get this thing away from me? Mm -hmm. And, like, sounds like your dog, you know, she just had some health issues. She wasn't as energetic or anything. I don't think, I don't know that Scuttle ever enjoyed Dobby.
0: No, I don't think so. I think, I mean, it goes right down to it. Um, I We are not experts. Okay. Our advice would be to go look at whatever Cesar Milan says again. Um, but I, based on our experience of Scuttle dealing with Dobby, and then Dobby dealing with... Uh, Gertrude, but really more Daisy. Tula. Oh yeah. Tula was. Yeah, I guess you're right. Okay. Well, so how old was Dobby when we got Tula? Five or six. Say so same age. I mean, I would never say they were best buds.
1: Oh no. well.
0: No, I mean they never, ever, ever once played together. Oh, ever. That's not true. No, never. Not like what you see Gertrude Gert and true. Daisy do. Gertrude
1: and Daisy get along like.
0: And I think wrestlers. that's because I, th- I think yeah um, I think you got to get a dog at a puppy. I mean, I, I I think neither Dobby no. nor Scuttle were ever going to be predisposed to really just letting their inner dog out. Because by the time you hit five or six, if you've been an only dog all that time, that's pretty much what you're going to be, and you're and, like, okay, I'll put up with this other dog, but I'm never going to be bestest with it.
1: Dobby loved Tula. They just weren't manic puppies together. Mm-hmm. So, and and whereas Gertrude and Daisy are definitely manic puppies together. Yeah. But they're not puppies, of course. They're just.
0: The I mean, well, Dobby couldn't stand Daisy, and that's I,
1: not true.
0: I have video evidence, honey pie.
1: All right,
0: in the lee of the couch. I
1: know. <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah. and you know, plus Daisy was not the best behaved when we first got her. I mean, she tended to snap at Dob and stuff like that, which yeah. was really problematic. But you know, hey, she was a street dog, so that was, was a tough adjustment for her too. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I, I. 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 Yes. I mean, I would. I would not say that Tula and Dobby weren't well socialized with each other. And yeah, they, they would lie on the couch together. together.
1: They snuggled.
0: Yeah. But I mean well, I, think no, they I mean, found you so look at you time. look at how I mean Gertrude and Daisy, yeah. they, they go out of their way. I mean they, you know, they are I mean they're they are what they're looking for with Sprecher and Sonic. And it sounds like I would imagine ultimately Sonic will get accustomed to Sprecher and they will be not outwardly super affectionate, but they will be accepting, and you will ultimately get to the point where, yeah, okay, there is an esprit de canine here, <laughs> um, but not like kind of what you're thinking about, not like what, and I, and I think that's because Sonic has been an only dog for five years, and yeah. is always going to be that way to a certain extent. That is, you know, that like you said, well be, um, yeah.
1: uh, you get used to being an only dog. Yep, and
0: also, and I, 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 or more to the point, I think you don't learn how to be a doggy dog right you know that that you know that sonic may have missed that by not having other dogs in his or her life um and so he learned how to be a certain way and sprecker is like no no i'm a doggy dog yep. i have not learned anything else <laughs> and you know it's it's really interesting uh dobby ultimately became the same dog as scuttle because uh, we had Scuttle for many, many years, mm-hmm. and then Dobby showed up, and Dobby learned from Scuttle. Oh, this is how you be. Yep, you be kind of a cool, collected dog who isn't necessarily a doggy dog, or, you know. And um, and yeah, whereas you know Daisy and Gertrude, they both met each other within their first two years when they were still yeah. ready to be outgoing doggy dogs. So yep. I I am no expert, but based on my life experience, I think that might be the way it is. But I certainly I agree with Jen that I do think Dobby and uh, Tula uh, you know were close yeah just not in the way we kind of expect dogs to be you know they, they were close in the in, as I mean even though they were still you know not even 10 yet they both acted like two old ladies <laughs> yep. who just hung out with each other. <laughs> so maybe that's Sonic and that's not bad. Um, and it's interesting though that that might ultimately define what Sprecker becomes as well because Sprecker will learn from Sonic.
1: Yep. So, is that what you want? Are you? I, I mean, I love. I like a laid back dog.
0: Yeah, it was not a problem for us at all that um, Dobby was incredibly laid back. And you know, and honestly, it's it, it. There's a lot to be said for having a dog who's kind of standoffish with other dogs, um, who's like, okay, yeah, I, I'll, I'll put up with you because you know they they aren't constantly. Running down the street and sneaking Uh. in through people's back doors and into their (laughs) houses—if you don't keep constant eye on them, because the dog knows there's a new puppy in the neighborhood—does
1: that sound like does that sound like anybody
0: we might know? Yes. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I know the big advice you always give. It's too late now. Whenever you're bringing a new dog into a household with an existing dog, is. You're supposed to take the existing dog out for a walk. And then, oh, what do you know? You happen to run into your spouse who happens to have this other dog. And they sniff each other. And then, oh, well, you know, they just happen to walk all in the house together. And, you know, that's supposed to be kind of helps the getting over any kind of dominance or territorial issues. Yep. Right? Yep. But you're past that. And it sounds like you don't necessarily have problems. You're just maybe not getting the kind of stereotypical...
1: Yeah, you would hope the dog would go, oh, yay, a puppy, woohoo! Yep. But also, your older dog is undergoing some health stuff. So they don't have the energy, they don't have the patience for some little bitty thing clambering all over you and chewing on your ears.
0: And they never learned that themselves.
1: Well, all puppies do that. Well, yeah, yeah, but... But, I mean, who knows? A lot of people will take a puppy away from its mom and its litter makes it six weeks. And that's just not enough time for the... For a puppy to learn how to be a dog from Mm -hmm. its mom and its siblings. I think you need to wait to... Or
0: to be a doggy dog, specifically. I mean, all dogs know what they're going to do. I mean, dogs know how to turn a circle before they poop and, (laughs) and, you know, all those things. But, you know, I mean, but specifically a social dog. Yes. I think they have to...
1: There you go. Social. Properly socialized dog. Yeah. So don't get a puppy at six weeks. Get an eight or nine or ten week old. You can pay in advance to make sure you get the one you want. Yeah. You know, if, if you want a girl and there's only one girl in the, in the litter. Yep. So anyway. But huh. yay, puppy!
0: Yes. Thank uh, you for the pictures and yes. good luck with it. And I mean, and don't worry about it too much. I mean, they will, <laughs> oh, they'll I, I, they will ultimately work it out. Yep. They will reach detente. They, you know, they they will find a way to move to get to, to work and move together.
1: Yeah. Because you're going to make a pack and yeah. dogs love packs.
0: Yep. Yeah. At the end of the day. Whether it was their first choice or not. Oh, okay. Sooner or later, Sonic will say, yep, okay. I guess you won me over. I guess you're in the pack. Fine. (laughs) Fine. Whose idea was this? All righty. Scott wonders, Honey Pie, will there ever be another hat day? Oh, my gosh. Apparently, Scott must have recently seen the hat day That's
1: hilarious.
0: Folks, if you don't know what that means, go do a Google search for Rado (laughs) Final Thoughts Deus. Where I was doing my final thoughts, and Jen was doing some spring cleaning at the same time, and uh, the spirit moved her.
1: Uh, I can't believe it. I haven't thought about Hat Day in forever. Thanks for the memoirs.
0: Mm-hmm. Any Hat Days in the future? I assume not.
1: I can't imagine that there would nope. be a Hat Day in the future.
0: Sorry. But you'll all, we have it on camera, so yep. you'll always have Hat Day, Scott. Uh, let's see. David says, this interview that starts at 2740 into the video, I hope, will dispel a lot of misunderstandings about how elections are won. Uh, Would this have changed your mind about voting for Yang? I think it is an interesting video that you will enjoy that has uh, important implications for all elections going forward. Oh my goodness. Um, Let's see. What could this be? Of course, I'm not going to watch the whole thing right now. Oh, hey, it's Sam Cedar with The Daily Report. I've been watching Sam Cedar. Yes. And you know what? I have actually seen this. I remember this interview, um, and uh, yeah, I think I remember this. When was this? Yeah, back last year. Yep. Okay. Yes, I remember Rachel uh, Bitecoffer. No, um, <laughs> it doesn't, because if I recall correctly, this was a, her treatise, um, and you know her explanation for her uncanny ability to predict twenty sixteen. Uh, you know, kind of go against. Uh, perceptions and trends had to do with extreme partisanship and how trying to play towards the middle is a fool's errand. Um, And, you know, I'm fine with that. But that has nothing to do with Andrew Yang. Because Andrew Yang um, has certainly, there's no doubt, a lot of centrist policies. But he has, by far, I think, the most powerful progressive policies of all um, and, uh, you know, you know, that, had, that would have had the most impact on the industry. They were every bit as progressive, just not traditional Bernie sanctified, uh, progressive policies. He had very different ones. And the important thing is his policies were equally attractive to both sides of the aisle, which is why he had by far the biggest pull of Trump voters, which is why he couldn't win the primary because the, in the primary, the Democratic nominee is not chosen by Republicans. Because if it was he probably would have had a very good shot. And um, so hyperpartisanship. I mean, he is not a middle-of-the-road Democrat. And so I don't think it necessarily applies to him. Uh, and so, no, I don't think that would have changed. But uh, yeah, I do remember that one. And I, and I think there's a lot of truth to what Rachel was talking about in that video. All righty. I used to watch uh entire episodes of Sam Cedar every day for at double speed. Can't do it anymore. Plus, I just can't stand Michael. Oh, he drives me nuts. So smug. But I love Sam. Uh he is very reasonable voice. Even though I disagree with him, I still respect him. Okay, Honey Pie. Alan says a suggestion for Jen should be the tea podcast should the tea podcast ever come to fruition. <laughs> Um, Edward, uh, Euler from Heavy Cardboard is be is a tea fiend and Ooh. may be an excellent guest host. Oh. Should the podcast ever happen. Honey, is the tea podcast happening? I guess there's no question here. So are you making a tea podcast or a tea YouTube show?
1: Uh, nobody's and even making asked it part me. of your, uh,
0: no. your, uh, New Zealand business plan.
1: <laughs> no, nobody's even asked me to do it. All right. Well, he said if one should happen. Yep. So, nobody's actually said, hey, we want a tea podcast.
0: Yep. You're the first person to mention it. There was not a Ground 12 support. So, I guess people are all teed out from Jen. And after this one, they're probably all uh, chickened out, too. (laughs) Okay. Baz wonders, what are the top five things we like about Britain, honey pie?
1: The top five things. I'm going to go with beautiful landscape, wonderful historic feel, um seems like everywhere you look, there's something interesting.
0: I history think. and landscape are two different ones, or are they the same thing?
1: Yeah, I'm going to say, no, the Be- British Isles are beautiful. Okay. So, I'm going to just say that. Scenery. All right. Um, I really love the British accent. All right. I love the national health care.
0: Okay. Uh, That's and, three?
1: No, that was... No, because
0: no, you, you, you combined um, his, history and scenic just into scenic. No, I didn't. You kind of did, but you're taking that out now. So, you're saying... <laughs> Scenic, countryside, sense of history, accent, health care. Yeah. Need one more.
1: <clears throat> I like that their food is actually food. It doesn't have partially hydrogenated stuff and fructose. Well, maybe some fructose. But no. Um,
0: Less preservatives. A, a completely different approach towards standards and, yeah. and all that. All right. I thought for sure you were just going to say Indian food, British Indian food. For Bonnie, specifically.
1: Well, I do enjoy that, but that's... But you're going broad.
0: That's a great list. I love it. Honey, what's your current new favorite TV show you're watching?
1: Oh, is this only directed to me?
0: We're running out of time.
1: My current new favorite television show?
0: Yes. You didn't ask for five. Just what's the first show you can think of that you like? That's recent. I'm
1: trying to remember what we just were watching. Uh, I I know I can't say that. You definitely can't say that.
0: Jen's had some swing and misses lately.
1: Yep. TV show that I've been
0: watching. New TV show. Come on.
1: I'm going to say... I would give some
0: quotes, but they are all <laughs> foul mouth, so I can't.
1: Okay. Oh, you... Catherine the Great?
0: <laughs> it's, the name of the show is The Great.
1: The Great. Yeah, that's been entertaining.
0: Have you enjoyed The Great?
1: I have enjoyed The Great.
0: And that's not something I would have expected you to enjoy, quite frankly. Because it can get pretty dark. I know.
1: (laughs) But I do love period dramas. Mm Mm-hmm. I do. So
0: is that it? The Great?
1: Um, I wanted to say that one that we watch when my parents are here. You know, Oh, um, what's that one called? Well, I don't
0: know if that's new anymore. Uh, That's Returning the Favor.
1: Returning the Favor. Yay! It's a show about people that go around and interview people who are doing good in their communities, and then they give them some money. (laughs) <laughs> and it's awesome to see that kind of change, the kind of change you want to see in the world actually going on.
0: It's not a TV show. It is aired on Facebook, unfortunately. So it's kind of a pain. It's too bad that it's not on network television. But, yes, it's hosted by Mike Rowe, the Dirty Jobs guy. Um, so.
1: Yep. Uh, that would be my So that's
0: your favorite show. But it's not a TV show. That's a, that's a streaming online show. It's your favorite TV television. show. It's only on the television because I use a Facebook video downloader website, convert them uh, so that Roku can play them, and then we play them on the TV. Most people don't get to watch it on the TV. So, so what? for your favorite TV show, are you going to go with The Great?
1: The, most recently? Yes. yes.
0: All right. There you go. What was the last good film we both watched?
1: Um, Hamilton.
0: All right. That's a good answer. Hard to beat that one.
1: Yep.
0: Uh, boy, it's a good thing. Uh, this, you waited a bit. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, I just got home.
0: I know. Good job. And during the. Yes. Well
1: done. Well done coming home.
0: Well done. Thank you. Congratulations on returning.
1: Yes. Walking Um, in the door.
0: During the lockdown, Baz has been watching older TV shows that he finds comforting. Uh, he or she, I'm not sure. Oh, no, Badge is short for Barry. So, uh, the, ba- uh, the he likes comforting, like Life on Mars and Ashes to Ashes. Have you or Jen been watching any old shows for comfort during the lockdown?
1: Well, I would like to watch West Wing again. I just need to have someone, like, responsible for my president.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and I can't have Jack Bauer.
0: Uh, Keeper Sutherland. Kiefer Sutherland. I can't remember the, his character. Name. The, name, the, show, the name of the show was Designated Survivor.
1: Designated Survivor guy.
0: President Kirkland.
1: Oh, yes. yes, I think so. Kirkland, very yeah. good. No, so it's got to be Josiah then.
0: Right, me. Josiah Bartlett. Well, no, I mean, but you have not been.
1: No, I haven't. But I, I just sometimes feel like I need to just pretend that we've got somebody who with the brain.
0: So if she were to, that's what she In the would office.
1: watch. Yes,
0: we would watch it for the fourth time. I think.
1: Is it fourth?
0: Uh, I, if we were to start, we would be watching it for the fourth time. Well, you would. Oh, for yes, right. For me, it'd be the fourth time. For you, yeah. it'd be the third time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And before, prior to before. Now, we were. I don't know why we stopped. We were watching all Star Trek. and uh, But then we stopped. And I don't know why.
1: I think we just got off
0: because there was a whole bunch of
1: fresh TV shows that you wanted to watch.
0: Yeah. Okay. Barry also says, has the virus been a positive... Oh, oh no. This came in... Uh, this is a game one. Let's let's save that one for next month. All right. Plus, we're running out of time.
1: We can always pause and come back.
0: Uh let's see. John wonders... Uh, when we lived in or near Guildford in the UK, it was in, did you get time to visit many of the villages, landmarks, and attractions in the area? And if so, what were your favorites? This question was inspired by Jen's brief mention of Farnham in the last talk-through, uh, which is the town I lived in for near uh, in the early 2000s in my pre-board gaming days. All the best. Honey Pie, what's your favorite stuff in Surrey County?
1: Well, Sheer is my favorite place to take people.
0: Uh, yeah. It's
1: very, very, very quaint. And
0: and you really love that one restaurant that's there.
1: Yep. there's And then there's a restaurant in Shear called Kingham's. K-I-N-G-H-A-M. Kingham's. Kingham's. Yeah. And um, that's where we always go for birthdays and anniversaries and stuff. Because it is delicious food. Reasonably priced for a fancy restaurant. And uh, just in this amazing, what is it, 17th century cottage probably? Low ceilings. <laughs> yes. Duck has to duck. Yes, quite a bit. So uh, that's, I guess, my favorite place to take people if um, somebody's just in town for a little while. Uh, what else? I, I just love it. It's, Surrey is a beautiful county to live in. And we've got uh, a nationally known scenic area that basically runs right yep. through our, our town of Guildford. Well,
0: when we so, lived on that side wonderful. of town, we used to walk the Downs a lot.
1: Yeah, the North Downs. know why they call them the north ones because we are quite south but Mm -hmm. we must be facing north
0: something anyway
1: yeah oh there's just yeah there's tons of stuff i love about guilford and we did a lot of stuff nearby because i've had a lot of family visit and so we would find things that to do you know little day trips or what have you in addition to doing big stuff like going into london or you know driving up to scotland or what have you
0: Mm Mm-hmm. and not gonna mention your favorite uh rabbit of course, it's gone It is now. no
1: longer available. They, it, was a,
0: it was the Compton House Tea Room, I think? No,
1: just Compton Tea Room. The Compton Tea Room, yeah. Yep, where the Watts Gallery is. <clears throat> Mary Watts.
0: And it's still nice, but they lost their chef who did the best oh, rare in the universe. Yes. We, Very sad. And they still do it, but it's not the same.
1: Nope. I took everybody there last oh, year you? when when I was in England with the family. and It was not the same. It's just not the same. Yep. And they have pre-done jam. Oh, jam in jars, inexcusable. They from no, I wanted their nope. homemade jam. Yep,
0: yep. Uh, yeah.
1: What uh, was the rest of the question? No, that was it. Oh, just did we like it there? In oh, no, activity? I mean, you no,
0: know, what what landmarks and things did we enjoy about the surrounding areas? Because because you mentioned in passing Farnham, yeah, and you haven't said anything about Farnham and how much you love Farnham well, Farnham's and their great. whole whatchamacallit center. Yes, didn't you rent a space in there for a while?
1: Um, or so did the, you look at it? The guild that I was a member of, we had a shop.
0: No shout the, out for the sherry. The
1: Farnham K- Maltings is where Yes, it was. that's it, the Maltings, yes. The Maltings. But I'm not sure that they're doing um, any kind of that anymore because I, it's been years. I, I think been
0: there. you're remiss in not giving a shout out.
1: Oh, right, of course. The best place in Surrey.
0: In all of Surrey. In
1: all of Surrey and probably any surrounding county as well. (laughs) um, Is the Surrey Guild of Craftsmen Gallery, which is in Milford. M-I-L-F-O-R-D. And it's just a group of about 40 handmakers like myself. We have potters, jewelers, glass people, woodworkers, iron people... Um, sculptors. Do they still have any of your stuff? Fabrics, no. None, none, you... none of my stuff. Is okay. There. Um, yeah, just an amazing collection of really good quality work. You should definitely go there if you are in Surrey. It's in Milford, just about 15 minutes away from Guildford. Well, maybe not even that 12. All right. Now, if you're in Sussex, there's another guild that I used to belong to called the Sussex Guild of Craftsmen. And you can go visit their shop in Lewis, Lewes, L E W E S. And that's also very good. All right. Um, and I'm also not there anymore.
0: <laughs> okay. Honey. Yes. Words of wisdom. And then we're out of here.
1: You're kidding. Yep. I'm ready. Go. Um, I thought this was pretty appropriate. Okay. Oh, maybe not. Maybe now not that we've talked that. Oh, Just like I, I had another one I just found.
0: Oh I man, she's had all this time to prepare. No, repair. I
1: have it. I have something ready. Well, then do it. No, no, I don't want to. Okay. Okay, it was. I I found a better one. All right. Okay, let me. just... I have to get up to the top. Apparently, it
0: was a quote from the Buddha. Actually, it
1: was. It's a good one. Why is it? Oh, maybe I maybe have to refresh. Uh oh. Hold on, I just pinned We're it. We're gonna
0: have to go to the Buddha. Buddha, if you can't find it soon.
1: Okay, I, this is very good. A wise man was asked, "What is anger?". He gave a beautiful answer. Anger is a punishment we give to ourselves for someone else's mistake.
0: Mm, wow.
1: It's a punishment we give to ourselves for someone else's mistake.
0: That's pretty good.
1: That just seems brilliant.
0: That is basically the same as the Buddha one, but it's, it's a little bit. Yeah. I was, that was a pretty harsh, uh, I, I saw over Jen's shoulder. Yeah. That one was pretty harsh for the Buddha. I know. <laughs> I
1: mean, I know. That's why I that's wanted to uh, soften yeah. a bit.
0: Yeah. All righty. Anyway. Anger is a punishment we give to ourselves or someone else's mistake. I agree. And that's it folks, another episode. And if you want more episode, we need more questions. Two questions at raddo.com. And uh, otherwise, hope you have a very very nice day. And Jen's got 19 minutes to get to whatever it was she needed to do, so we made it in time. Hoorah! Yay! Bye everybody.
1: Thanks for listening. Do we say that? I don't think we've ever said that. But anyway, thank you.
0: And life.